0: This is about a movie about a couple of killers, Harry Callahan, and a homicidal maniac. The one with the badge is Harry. This is the story of a man who decided
1: to clean up the most violent town in the world.
0: I said turn around. Give me the money.
1: He begins where all the super cops leave off. And if this person is listening to my voice.
0: I urge him in the name of law and order To desist from this one man crusade And turn himself into the police I know what you're thinking punk You're thinking did he fire six shots or only five Now to tell you the truth I forgot myself and all this excitement But being this is a 44 Magnum The most powerful handgun in the world And will blow your head clean off You could ask yourself the question Do I feel lucky? Well do you punk. Death is too easy for you, bitch. I want you to suffer.
1: My name is John Shaft. Freeze. Someday a real ring will come and wash all the scum off the streets. Call him a mad vigilante. Call him a hero. Either way, he's always on target have you heard the story of and written on the wall
0: and everyone blood. has the different stories of oh this happened to my brother this is telling you stories of the old family. there was this girl it was back when we were a little kids to find out the truth regarding one of the most enduring tales in the american a story behind the story because it's just a story hello and welcome to the just a story podcast i'm jake
1: and i'm sam
0: and we're here to tell you a story
1: Each week, we take a look at the stories that we tell over and over again. What our fears and fables, myths and misdeeds say about us as humans.
0: Welcome back, all you bad mother...
1: Shut your mouth. You took my (laughs) weekly affirmation. I was going to tell our listeners... Did you
0: say affirmation? I did. You wish you did.
1: And now that you said it, it's true. But yeah, I was going to tell you all that you're a bunch of uh, sexy motherfuckers and you're all bad and the best way possible. And I think you're foxy and wonderful. You think I'm foxy? You're not foxy.
0: <gasps> Samantha. You're Ottery. <That's> <laughs> what? Thank you. We want to welcome you all back to the show. I want to remind you that you can reach out to us in any which way you want to, whether that be on social media at... Just a story pod on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. Um you can also check out our website, just a storypod.com, where you can find links to all of our sources for all the episodes and sometimes some other fun stuff.
1: There's also a link to our merchandise page where you can find various illustrations from various episodes printed on various items. And Sundry. And you can also find a link to our Patreon page. And our Patreon page is a place where you can go if you want to contribute to the show and be viewers like you or listeners like you.
0: Of course, there's one other way you can reach out to the show.
1: That is the Urban Legend Hotline. And you can reach the Urban Legend Hotline by dialing 512-222-3375. And we and have a new old-fashioned thing. What's that? Our p.o box
0: oh i thought you had finally ordered that messenger pigeon
1: oh a carrier pigeon they're extinct what kind of pigeons that extinct? one type is <laughs> no i did not i have not made my steampunk investment yet but we do have a p.o box and you can send us mail there
0: and you can send your snail mail to p.o box one seven five four zachary louisiana Seven zero seven nine one. And we have really been enjoying getting all of your letters and such forth.
1: Like really reading the mail that we've gotten has been the highlight of my like quasi antiquarian existence.
0: (laughs) And we just might write back. So Sam. So Jacob. Let's get back to the story at hand.
1: Story at fist, Jacob.
0: Are the movies?
1: Movies at hand. We haven't done just a movie in forever. No, that's true. It's been a good while.
0: But, you know, there are so many urban legends about vigilante justice.
1: Right. And vigilante justice is a cornerstone of American
0: popular culture. Of course. I mean, we kind of started that way. It was true. But we thought it'd be fun to take a look at some of the movies that came out in the 70s that really helped codify it into our Very modern day thought of justice.
1: Right, so for the purposes of this episode, we are not talking about Batman.
0: Batman does not count. He's a superhero. He is
1: a vigilante. That's kind of his deal. But we wanted to look more at the gritty crime drama. The
0: action flick. The grindhouse movie. So we can't talk about vigilante movies, especially 70s vigilante movies, which is when they really had a heyday without talking about Dirty Harry.
1: You mean Clint Eastwood?
0: He's the actor.
1: I'm pretty sure he's actually Dirty Harry.
0: Maybe he is.
1: It did not look like acting to me. I saw him at the Republican National Convention and he reprised the role.
0: (laughs) That probably is where he would end up. But Dirty Harry takes place in San Francisco in the 70s. And they present it as a crime-ridden Sodom.
1: Urban blight and things. Oh,
0: red-light districts. There are those homosexuals, threesomes with two women and a man.
1: So, the Tourism Bureau put this out, is what you're saying? Definitely. Cool.
0: Even early in the movie, Harry's just trying to go get some lunch when there's a bank robbery that occurs.
1: Well, clearly. I mean, he's in the middle of hell.
0: Well, that, of course, he stops.
1: Because he's a vigilante. Well, he's a cop, Well, that's kind of his job. Why are we even talking about it? We'll get there. Okay.
0: And so this is one of the famous scenes that has nothing really to do with the plot of the movie. And it's where you you get the famous... Do you feel
1: lucky? Well, do you?
0: But the actual plot of the movie is about the Zodiac Killer-like character roaming San Francisco.
1: Cool. So they really stretched here, is what you're telling me. Yeah,
0: it's called Scorpio.
1: They really, really stretched.
0: Well, in David Fincher's Zodiac movie... They go see Dirty Harry. Nah. So Scorpio is preying on the good ish citizens of San Francisco. Mm. And Dirty Harry, this dirty cop. Having none of it. Is gonna take care of it. So Scorpio is initially presented with like this red ski mask on, and as you start to see more about him, he has this very hippie-like appearance. He has long hair and he has a peace sign belt. Oh, well, he seems like a
1: challenge to the establishment for sure.
0: Exactly. So the trailer wonderfully states, this is about a movie about a couple of killers, Harry Callahan and a homicidal maniac. The one with the badge is Harry.
1: Okay, so that's interesting. They're kind of putting them on equal footing. They're saying they're both crazy, violent men, but one of them has a badge. So read good guy.
0: He's a great character. He really is. And he kind of continues his great character streak from Mm -hmm. the Sergio Leone spaghetti westerns that Eastwood starred in and what really made his name.
1: Like Good, Bad, and the Ugly?
0: Uh, The man with no name, things like that. Yeah. John Milius, one of the writers, describes Harry saying, Dirty Harry is not really the police. He's kind of a fella that's acting on his own.
1: But he has a badge.
0: Yeah, but at the end of the movie, he tosses the badge in the water. So it's like, eh, I don't think he counts as like a cop problem or anything like that. He is his own, taking his own justice. He's bucking the system.
1: Because the whole system's corrupt? Exactly. I knew it.
0: It's an argument for illegal and unethical operations if society is breaking down. Conventional lines of authority are ineffectual and only heroic actions which go beyond arbitrary rules can stem the tide. So his backstory is that his wife died in a traffic accident by a drunk driver, and he then becomes fanatical and only believes in his ability to right all of these wrongs.
1: So what you're telling me is he needs to be taken off the force immediately, and we need to provide restitution to any people that have been wrongfully arrested by him, and that the justice system will take care of Harry by the end of the movie.
0: It is interesting because they he does go too far in capturing Scorpio, and they're saying, oh, we can't charge him because you didn't do the right procedure. I'm okay with that. So the movie kind of addresses a lot of things that were going on in society in the 60s and 70s, where there were lots of Supreme Court decisions about suspects' rights, victims' rights... Just lots of changes in society in general.
1: It's where law enforcement is kind of codified and systematized. Right. It's where we get things like the Miranda decision.
0: Exactly. So when it came out, a lot of critics had a lot to say about it. Pauline Kael said it was fascist medievalism Hmm. and a right-wing fantasy. And Roger Ebert said this movie's moral position is fascist.
1: Dirty Harry's a fascist. But not a socialist and not a communist. So we're okay with it?
0: Not a communist and not, yeah, not a hippie.
1: So we're okay with it.
0: Apparently. And so while Dirty Harry really walks the line on that, the movie that really seals the deal on this kind of fascist fantasy idea is Death Wish.
1: I don't even know Death Wish. Tell me everything.
0: Death Wish is like really a real grindhouse flick to where like Dirty Harry is like, is still a good movie.
1: Like a cinema release kind right. of thing. Like
0: know? Death Wish is 100% grindhouse. And so it starred Charles Bronson.
1: Of mustache fame?
0: Of mustache fame. Okay. Who was also a star in Leone's once upon a time in the west so he also has that western vigilante background as well so in the movie a racially mixed group of young hoodlums follows the wife and daughter home from this follows the main character's wife and daughter home from the supermarket they kill the wife and rape the daughter who ends up in a mental hospital Now, Charles Bronson plays Paul Kiersey, a mild-mannered New York City architect. After this violent attack on his family, he starts to prowl the streets and the subways of New York City.
1: Looking for hoodlums?
0: Looking for hoodlums. You know who plays a hoodlum in this movie? Who
1: plays a hoodlum? Jeff Goldblum. He's totally a hoodlum.
0: It's his first acting credit on screen. Oh
1: my god. That's amazing.
0: So, he of course escalates and escalates, first starting with just some coins and a sock. And he's going to hit anybody that tries to mug him, going up to guns and shooting people down.
1: (laughs) Logical path. All right, so we've got a dynamic character.
0: So he's eventually caught by the police. But instead of being arrested, since he's gotten so much kind of media fame, he is told to get out of town. So he takes a train to Chicago. And Uh. the famous final scene has him sitting at the Chicago train station. And he sees some young ruffians terrorizing a poor innocent person like a close-up of his face, and he smiles and makes a gun with his fingers. He
1: finger guns them? He
0: finger guns them.
1: I don't like the message of this film.
0: <laughs> well, so an audience seeing Death Wish was described at the time as, The atmosphere in the theater was electric. People absolutely roared with delight when the bad guys met the bullets. What they were seeing was justice.
1: I don't know if that's true. Do we just like it because it's like a gladiator game? You know, is it just the novelty of like seeing a regular person fight or is it the idea that they all deserve it? Like do you th- how much do you think the idea that they deserve to be shot plays into people's enjoyment of it?
0: Well, so I think you really have to look at the context of the movie. Okay. Like what's going on in the time. So we just kind of talked about what New York was like in the 70s.
1: Right, on our Helltown episode. Exactly.
0: And so It came up at a time where there was so much problems with the country. Of course, there was an economic crisis, inflation, energy crisis, gas lines, rising crime rates. One criminologist said there was a sense that things were falling apart. Before Richard Nixon's presidency, there was always the notion that you could reform someone. But with the upheavals of the 1960s and the uneasiness of the 70s, many felt we'd gone too far in liberalizing things. And this is one of the reasons the public was supportive of Nixon's Law and Order campaign platform. And later, of course, for Hollywood's vigilante dream movies.
1: So this is a time when we're saying all the systems are failing, go back to basics, good guy with a gun.
0: Yeah, like maybe we need to go back in time to the Wild West or something.
1: We're just posses and things are roaming all manner of hillsides and looking out for the little guy. And we'll get there. Aside from it being what right does an architect have to administer justice, I'm going with none, it's very patronizing, too. In what way? Like, the daughter is portrayed as helpless. Like, it's not her going out and kicking these guys' asses after something terrible happens to her.
0: But there were movies like that during the 70s.
1: Right? That's a different... To me, that's a different set of themes. Like, it's a vigilante, but it's like the person who has been actually hurt not like on behalf of his daughter or you know like it's it's the the people who are actually being marginalized and right and that's a
0: key that it is like society's the problem yeah society's the problem not one guy you're going after and it's not the joker right the hero you deserve or something
1: (laughs) oh god do we deserve charles bronson
0: (laughs) no in the 70s we might have (laughs) but penelope gallette wrote review when Death Wish came out, saying that it's given over to characters who voice every bigotry about New York City that runs rampant in the rest of the world, which seems to believe that New York's upper middle class had better move post-haste to the suburbs before their wives are raped or their children learn Spanish, and that the bums who take up the rest of the city are just freeloading off welfare with a switchblade in every pocket.
1: I love that her, like, two points of terror are before their... Their children are raped or their children learn Spanish. Right, well, she's being I you know, I know. I know. Yeah. But that, that's funny and it, it, because it feels that way. It feels like one's as big of a threat as the other, right? Yeah. yeah.
0: And so one of the first vigilante films at the start of this craze is called Joe. Okay. And it is, a, again, a true grindhouse flick. So in Joe, it's about two men. One, a blue-collar factory worker, and one, a well-off advertising agent. And the only thing that pulls these two very different men together is their hatred of hippies. Hippies. Yeah, the the counterculture. Okay. Joe is a bigoted reactionary who fought in Korea and who loathes the peace movement. So this is our blue collar guy. Bill is a seemingly tolerant liberal who happened to kill the pill-pushing hippie boyfriend of his teenage daughter in one moment of blind rage.
1: You cannot kill your daughter's boyfriend. (laughs) Talk about a fantasy.
0: Well, I love that because it's like, oh, this liberal guy, so super tolerant, but then when it affects his family. Ugh. Okay. <laughs> Why is it not called Joe and Bill? Good question. <laughs> so in these movies, the problem is with society, not our classical version of evil that st- stems from within a person. In today's mass societies, the tragic flaw so often lies in the system. Those huge aggregates of power that can neutralize and crush the individual. The police and courts are incompetent, corrupt. The young and rebellious are wicked. Society is pathologically sick. We must fix it. We must carve out the rotten parts.
1: So how is an architect with a gun going to do that?
0: Carve out the rotten parts. How
1: many rotten parts are there? I don't know what's left.
0: But if we all were architects with guns.
1: Oh, God. Just like... You know, a well-armed militia or something.
0: Something like that. But you can see that it is this kind of very extreme right-wing fascist sense of justice.
1: I'm going to do something. Like, what is the actual definition of fascist? Because it feels right. It's like
0: authoritarian.
1: So according to vocabulary.com fascist is a follower of a political philosophy characterized by authoritarian views and a strong central government and no tolerance for opposing opinions the term was used by italian political leader benito mussolini under his totalitarian anti-communist government
0: right so this is like we're authoritarian we know what's right for you even though you think that you are the correct Hippy,
1: Socially conscious
0: Counterculture You're wrong We're gonna keep the status quo And one day is.
1: You'll thank us for it
0: Exactly Cause we're right
1: So very paternalistic Patronizing very,
0: very Okay
1: I think that one thing That's important to point out About all these movies Is they are about Keeping the people Who are in power In power Yes Like they are about Not letting The rougher elements Of society Degrade it
0: Yeah Keeping the old line
1: the old garden place. Yes. So whenever I think about fascists and Italy and Mussolini, I tend to jump immediately to the mafia. The mafioso. mafioso. Well,
0: that's a great movie. Godfather. Uh,
1: oh, well, yeah, clearly. The Godfather is amazing. It used to be my I'm sad, so I need to go watch a movie. I think I'll put on The Godfather.
0: <laughs> just wanted to see a little bit of justice.
1: <laughs> I think I just wanted to see the complex inner workings of a corrupt family who define their own morality and abide by it. And I like Vito.
0: Yeah. I mean, he's cool.
1: Luca Brasi.
0: He sums up the fishes. <sighs> if you try to look at the history of the mafia, they will claim that they have very deep ties in Italy. Well. Centuries. Old. Oh, yeah. Centuries. 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 All right. The Middle Ages. Huh. Okay To a group known as the Bieti Paoli Okay The Blessed Paulist So This came into really public consciousness In the early 1900s When Luigi Natoli published in 239 installments In the daily paper of Sicily The book I Bieti Paoli And later of course it was published as a book it narrates the adventures of an 18th century secret society in Palermo, who were the carriers of justice? They would wear black sackcloth with hooded heads and masked faces. They met at night in galleries and tunnels, sneaking, literally, in the underground.
1: So they're like the Illuminati. Or are they like the Illuminati's muscle?
0: <laughs> they're not the Illuminati. Everyone's
1: the Illuminati. Not
0: everything's the Illuminati.
1: So they're under. They are literally stalking the undergrounds, underworld, like some underworld mob boss. Yeah. Carrying
0: out justice. So, Umberto Eco wrote an introduction in 1984 pointing out that Natale's haunting description of the Beate Peole could be understood as a charter myth for the mafia. The opposition to hierarchy became the reason why justice is possible.
1: So it's like a resistance movement?
0: It's what they want you to think. Okay. So, his story is a very cleaned-up view of things. Mm. There are no records of any kind that were kept, and its history depends entirely on folk memory. Oh, so it's super reliable. Super reliable. Cool. Some historians do feel that they have been around, or were around, since the 14th, 15th century. Now people think maybe they're only a few hundred years old. Okay. So earlier works of fiction and nonfiction depicted them as cutthroat murderers, acting for their own advantage, rather than an altruistic and just executioner's. A work in the 1830s mentions the organization and in 1869, St. Paul magazine had a little bit about it saying, its efforts were directed against the oppression exercised by kings and nobles upon the defenseless people. But, as its members became numerous, it fell into the most extravagant excess. So that the Biete Pioli have met a very checkered fame but even though they may have had a little bit of a checker past when sicilian peasants suffer some injury they exclaim would that the biete peole still existed
1: (laughs) amazing my new favorite expletive so they claim to have been like a resistance movement to a corrupt System of hierarchy put in place to keep the man down.
0: The tyrannical king. Overlords. Yes, exactly.
1: Okay. And then it seems like in reality, they may have been almost like hired assassins.
0: No, they were more like the mob.
1: (laughs) They were more like the mob. Yeah, so. Like charging people for protection and that kind of thing.
0: Well, so they would carry out their own brain of justice about who they thought had done wrong. Okay. So they would hold their victims on trial even in absentia. They would operate at night, emerging from the catacombs. (laughs) which There are Capuchin catacombs in Palermo in their dark clothes and hood to extract their brand of justice. Now, in 1821, Memories of the Secret Societies of the South of Italy said, This institution, vicious and horrible in itself, did, however, produce some partially salutary effects restraining the arbitrary licentiousness of the great by the terror with which it inspired them the punishment inflicted were death by poison or the dagger mutilation destruction of property by fire and for the slightest crimes or faults the severest beatings so i think what has come if you read about it is like they try to have this kind of view that they're like this group of secret Robin Hoods
1: like almost like a very populist idea
0: yeah but you really if you look at it it's much more goes with the idea of the mafia because they are people that are very much self serving
1: right so like a competitor a business competitor could get on the wrong side of them real easy
0: oh yeah ended up trialed underground in the secret grotto of the Capuchin catacombs under Palermo black hooded figures
1: so just like an awesome Tuesday
0: (laughs) not if you're on trial
1: (laughs) can't imagine the threat of that being real but they really existed and they really most
0: historians think they did in some form exist
1: and they would really take people into the catacombs and put them on trial or try them in absentia which is insane
0: (laughs) oh if you think that's insane let's go even further back in history
1: sure I love going back in history
0: Let's go even further into the Middle Ages. To the Holy Vim. I'm sorry. The Holy Vim. The Vimic Courts. Okay. So a lot of people say the Biete they may have gotten their idea from the Vimic courts, or they are extremely similar if not. So they were a proto vigilante tribunal system that first began in the late Middle Ages in Westphalia, Germany. So in 1865 book, The Secret Societies of All Ages and Countries, said, The supreme authority of the emperor had lost all influence in the country. The imperial assizes were no longer held. Might and violence took the place of right and justice. The feudal lords tyrannized over the people. Whosoever dared could to seize the guilty, whoever they might be, to punish them before they were aware of the blow with which they were threatened, and thus to secure the chastisement of crime, which was the object of the Westphalian judges, and thus the existence of this secret society, the instrument of public vengeance.
1: So they were basically vigilante executioners who would just go after anybody that had done wrong and kill them before they knew it was coming.
0: Yes. Did you want to hear the details? Fun. Yes! <laughs> so the leader was the Count And the members were the Knowing Ones. Oh no, that's amazing. The court was looking for any offense against the Christian faith, the Gospels, or the Ten Commandments. Shit. Yeah, I know.
1: It's not going to go well.
0: They had secret languages and secret signs.
1: So they're the Illuminati.
0: Yes. (laughs) (laughs) So to become one of the Holy Vim, yes, the Knowing Ones, you would have to swear allegiance to them over anything. The candidate would kneel, his head uncovered and holding the forefinger and the middle finger of his right hand upon the sword of the president, runs thus, I swear perpetual devotion to the secret tribunal, to defend it against myself, against water, sun, moon, and stars, the leaves of trees, all living beings, to uphold its judgments and promote their execution. I promise, moreover, that neither pain, nor money, nor parents, nor anything created by God shall render me, Perjured.
1: Sounds so pagan.
0: Right? And of course they would wear, you know, hoods and masks and cloaks and things like that.
1: Uh Uh-huh. So,
0: how to be accused for the court?
1: I am pretty sure I would be. For what? (laughs) Um, talking back. Oh, yeah, sure. Being too sassy. I'm pretty sure sarcasm was not legal.
0: So, all you'd have to do is go to somebody that was in the court and uh, accuse somebody.
1: Oh, so you would tell on me? yes. Okay.
0: Sorry. Told
1: you. I told you I would be accused.
0: So they would write a summons on parchment and seal it with seven seals and deliver it to the place of residence. Now if they did not know where this person lived, the summons would be exhibited at a crossroads of his supposed county or placed at the foot of the statue of some saint or affixed to the poor box not far from some crucifix or humble wayside chapel. If the accused was a knight dwelling in his fortified castle, they would introduce themselves at night under any pretense into the most secret chamber of the building and deliver the summons.
1: You got served. Right? It's very like one way or another. I'm going to get you, get you, get you.
0: So what's interesting is how they would prove that this was real. Like the the truth.
1: Like, substantiate the charges? Yeah. Like how they...
0: So, instead of trying to prove the actual charge, the accuser would have to bring seven people that could testify to his honor, basically.
1: So, the burden of proof was on the accused? Yes. Fun. Are
0: you a trustworthy person?
1: Fun. Okay, and so, thank God this is not done on Twitter. Yeah, really. And if you came with seven people, were you automatically let off?
0: no, 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 no. The accuser would bring seven people.
1: To to back him up? Yeah. Uh, me and my seven friends, we saw you over there, exactly. and we know what you were doing. Exactly. And I saw Goody, Patience, and the Devil dancing in the moonlight.
0: Exactly.
1: Oh, my God. Okay, cool. So, did you have a chance to defend yourself?
0: Oh, no. That proved it.
1: So, it as long as one dude and seven of his friends said that you sinned or against God and defamed the Gospels or something. Oh, and, yeah. And then what happened to you?
0: Uh, you were
1: executed. Yes. Because that's kind of what they did.
0: Yes, his good estates were declared forfeited, his wife a widow, his children orphans. He was declared fimbar, punishable by the vim, and any three initiated that met with him were at liberty, nay enjoined, to hang him on the nearest tree.
1: So, if he runs into three members of the Vemet court, he's done. He's dead. But they have to be in a group of three?
0: At least three.
1: Because then it's not a mob.
0: <laughs> right? Then how do you get mob justice?
1: This is incredible.
0: So, the accuser was also given a document that said, oh, this guy is guilty. And he could use this document to claim assistance of the other members to carry out the sentence. And all the initiated were bound to grant him theirs Were even against their own parents
1: Oh my god, so he could come and he'd have like a little loyalty card or something Right? (laughs) Membership card! And it would say like, go get goody patients or whoever Mm -hmm. And then no matter who you were or what you were doing
0: Yeah, if you see all your buds of the, you know, out working You'd be like, I got my paper Let's get this mofo
1: I hope all these people could read. (laughs) I don't think they could.
0: Probably not. Uh, So after the person was hung, a knife was stuck in the tree to indicate that he had suffered death at the hands of the Holy Vim.
1: Holy Vim sounds like such an alien cartoon. This is terrifying.
0: (laughs) So there was even one tale of one way that they would put someone to death that was condemned by the secret tribunal. So... Oh, yeah, I guess I I didn't, like, explicitly say you were not necessarily brought in to stand trial. You could be, but just like the other group, you could be tried in absentia and often was.
1: That's my favorite. There's nothing says justice. Like, we talked about it behind your back and we decided that you're definitely guilty.
0: (laughs) So one way a story goes says that they would bring someone in to a subterranean vault where there was a statue of the Virgin Mary. And they would be told to kiss the statue.
1: And being good, God-fearing people, they would.
0: And then... It would eat them! It was an Iron Maiden.
1: So it would eat them.
0: So it would open up, full of spikes.
1: And they'd go inside it, and it would squish them and make them die a very painful death.
0: Yes. Which, there was all kind of, like, wooden cylinders with knives that would puree them, basically. And then it would be built over water, so the debt trap door could just open up and...
1: The bits would fall out.
0: Fall into the water. Ah. I don't like this story. <laughs> <laughs> so of course, some of that is verifiable. Some of it is in writings from the time because they kept some records. Um, because at one some points they were legal. Uh-huh. <laughs> but of course, like the Iron Virgin Mary maiden story is is Most probably a folk tale. Yeah. Following the abandonment of the Vimmick Courts, the term kind of acquired this connotation of mob rule and lynching, and in modern Germany, the spelling of Femme, F-E-M-E, is most common, and it means to ostracize by public opinion rather than formal legal proceeding.
1: So it's like having a being tried in the press, kind of.
0: Yeah, I guess so. Or Twitter, <laughs> or something. <laughs> so, the Vimmick Courts went away... But they're you know the folklore of it stuck around in Europe, of course. I mean, how that's not going anywhere. Right? They had
1: they had knowing ones. They had seven seals on their documents. Uh-huh. It's all very official and worthy of repeating.
0: So the Vimic courts found their way into a book by Sir Walter Scott.
1: I've heard of him, Ivanhoe, right? Oh, yeah, definitely.
0: Yeah. In the book, Anne of Geerstein, also called the Maiden of the Mist. So Archibald van Hagenbach
1: has the best name.
0: The Duke of Burgundy's governor in Switzerland is condemned and executed by the Vem. So in the story, Philipson, after a restless hour in bed, finds his pallet sinking into a dark subterranean vault. The story goes from the irregular manner. In which these scattered lights advanced, sometimes keeping a straight line, sometimes mixing and crossing each other, it might be inferred that the subterranean vault in which they appeared was of very considerable extent. Their numbers also increased, and as they collected more together, Philipson could perceive that the lights proceeded from many torches, borne by men muffled in black cloaks, like mourners of a funeral, wearing their cows drawn over their heads, so as to conceal their features. They appeared anxiously engaged in measuring off a portion of the apartment, and while occupied in that employment, they sang in the ancient German language, rhymes more rude than Philipson could well understand, but which must be imitated thus. Measures of good and evil, bring the square, the line, the level, rear the altar, dig the trench, blood both stone and ditch shall drench. Cubit six from end to end Must the fatal bench extend Cubit six from side to side Judge and culprit must divide On the east the courts assemble On the west the accused trembles Answer brethren, all in one Is the ritual rightly done?
1: I feel like something's gonna appear (laughs) Like here, like right now In this sweltering heat
0: So he realizes these are the celebrated judges Of the secret tribunal
1: And he assumes that he's brought in for a chat, just to catch up, you know.
0: He's in trouble.
1: He's He's in in trouble. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I figured.
0: So, do you know who loves Sir Walter Scott?
1: Arthur Conan Doyle? Maybe. I don't know. It was a guess. It's usually the right answer. (laughs)
0: Yeah, you're right. Uh, Southern Gentleman.
1: Oh, yes. Why? I declare.
0: So, Mark Twain, in Life on the Mississippi, actually wrote about How much Walter Scott influenced the southern antebellum farmer, or plantation owner. Planta. Planta, I'm sorry. Gentleman planter. Whereas crowned heads in Europe were gods before, there are only men since then. Then comes Sir Walter Scott with his enchantments, and by his single might sets the world in love with dreams and phantoms. He did measureless harm, more real and lasting (laughs) harm, perhaps, than any other individual that ever wrote. Most of the world has now outlived a good part of these harms, though by no means all of them. But in our South, they flourish pretty forcefully still, but for the Sir Walter Scott disease, the character of the Southerner, according to Sir Walter's starchier way of phrasing it, would be wholly modern in place of modern and medieval mixed and the south would be fully a generation further advanced than it is it was he that created rank and caste down there and also reverence for rank and caste and pride and pleasure in them sir walter had so large a hand in making southern character as it existed before the war that he is in great measure responsible for the war.
1: Good Lord, that is the most searing indictment of any long-dead author I've ever heard.
0: I feel like he's got beef with him.
1: I know, like he owes him money or something. (laughs) It feels so deeply personal. He must. Well, I hope that Mark Twain got to say his two cents to Sir Walter Scott in Writer Heaven. And I hope they've had fisticuffs, and I hope Mark Twain... Hit him with a sock full of quarters and got some vigilante justice. <laughs> so that's really interesting. So, what let, let's kind of digest that a little bit, as much as it is just delightful to hear. So, I think it's fairly obvious that both social position and the idea of being born into your position and staying in your position and importance
0: of it so
1: predetermined groups of people, like, you know. If your skin's darker than mine, you work for me. That seems logical. Sure. You would have to kind of believe in some sort of magical thinking to really feel that way, like to really buy in. So what Mark Twain is charging here yes. is that belief in magical rank and caste and a supernatural or divine ordering and hierarchy of humans, which could be, you know, the basis for For people being okay with slavery is kind of all Walter Scott's fault. Yeah.
0: That's what Twain's (laughs) saying.
1: I mean, I find this very fascinating.
0: Well, and then it's like it's so hard not to think of the imagery, and I showed you some of the old etchings from before The Civil War, yes. Of the holy vim in Sir Walter Scott's book.
1: And they look a little a little grand dragony.
0: They looked a lot. <laughs> they look a
1: lot. Oh, Grand Dragony. You can see the influence of like the language and the titles and such on the Ku Klux Klan. You can also see it in the way they've chosen to robe themselves. And, you know, they've got tortures in those etchings and it's kind of secret a thing. Courts. Yeah, <laughs> kind of a thing. Secret courts, secret tribunals, rigid hierarchy. Meeting at night, under the cover of darkness, covering your face, mob justice, not really justice, mob racially motivated hate crimes, whatever. You see that basically it's all the faults of Walter Scott.
0: Sure. Just go delete that episode we did on the history of the KKK. Don't listen to her.
1: No, but I, I do think it's an, an interesting no, point.
0: It's it's one of the million factors, but it's interesting.
1: And if you want to understand Walter Scott better, there is a wishbone for that.
0: You're right. You don't have to read the book.
1: <laughs> just go watch Ivanhoe or Ivanhound or whatever it is.
0: <laughs> I bet that night casting when that little dog is so cute.
1: It is. I had the books. I bet you did. I did. I loved Wishbone. So much. could do a whole episode about how much I loved Wishbone.
0: So. <laughs>
1: What's the story Wishbone?
0: Now that word Vim or fim, has different All I can variations. think of is like,
1: I think it was an old Dr. Pepper slogan that's like, Vim, vigor, oh, vitality.
0: Yeah, it was. <laughs> used during that post-World War I Weimar Republic area of Germany to describe the right-wing political homicides that were going on as the Far right was gaining power.
1: And I I think that those eventually had a name change Nazis. To Nazis. (laughs) I hate those guys. So I'm not saying that all right wing thinking leads to things like the KKK or the Nazis. I'm just saying it has. (laughs)
0: Samantha, no, 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 no. This, you know, and that's an important distinction. So with this, you do see this ultra right wing, and that means like Nazis, that means the KKK, that means it's super over there, side of things, taking this fascist form of justice, where they are the only ones, right? They're authoritarian, they have to hold the, you know, old line and keep things the way they are, status quo. And you continue to see that from... The beginning of time <laughs> through to the modern day.
1: Right. So, this is like if you're looking at a political spectrum, we have long since crossed the line that said conservative, like the little tick on our oh, timeline. No. We've waved you're in the neo
0: Nazi area. Yeah.
1: We've gone way, 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 way to the right. And conservative is la- looking at us, waving, going, Hey, where'd you go? So, right. let's go the other way. Fun, fun, fun. Till oh, our daddy takes our t oh, away. All
0: the way to the left. Okay. The other side of the coin. There is another side of the coin for vigilante justice.
1: So true. So, for the purposes of continuity and not having all of our extras go change into new wardrobe, I figured we could just stay in the Middle Ages.
0: Might as well. We Might have, as well. Are we gonna need cloaks? We yes. Of course, the Middle Ages.
1: Okay. We, we've yeah, we've got to have cloaks, but we have
0: cloaks. Okay, now turn them inside out, guys. No, we don't need the white anymore. No, we do. Oh, we need white. Sorry. No, keep the black on the inside. Okay.
1: All, right. all right. Cool. So, way
0: back. Watch where you put the torch. I'm really glad that we sunk our
1: entire budget for the year into hiring all these reenactors so that our audience can really experience.
0: I'm enjoying it.
1: It was a good investment. Sound investment. Thanks, okay.
0: patrons.
1: <laughs> Who needs a soundproof studio when? Okay. So, way, way back. Way back in time. 1180.
0: Oh, we're going even further back. Even further back. It's like real Middle Ages. Dark. Dark Ages, even.
1: Dark Ages, even. So, things are bad in France. Everyone's fighting. Everyone. And I'm going to now give you the briefest of brief introductions to this from a popular science article from June of 1880. This was about
0: carpenters. (laughs) You never know where we're going to find this information. Like, if you ever dig in our sources, you would be like, what the fuck? <laughs>
1: <laughs> Hundreds of those craftsmen forced by want swelled the companies of the marauders known to history as the rotiers, the Cotereaux, and the barbacons. Owing to this reinforcement, their plunderings grew to frightful proportions. Between the years of 1180 and 1182, a pious carpenter of puy named Durand in an outburst of honest and patriotic indignation at the sight of the disorders committed by his fellow tradesmen, declared that he had been entrusted by the Lord with a mission of restoring peace. Such was the enthusiasm aroused by his preaching that a crusade against the Barbicans, the most terrible of those adventurers, that in a short time he gathered around him a powerful army, which were called the Brothers of the Peace. The Barbicans were exterminated and the other companies having disbanded or learning of the successes of the Pacifics, Duran was hailed as a hero, the savior of his country. But fanaticism and ambition engendered excess. The Brothers of the Peace became a cause for dread to the community and France, which during this moral ebullition had rejected a part of its impure elements, now cast aside the others by dispersing the chiefs of the Brotherhood of the Pacifics. Duran, as was often the case under similar circumstances, met with death by order of powerful lords for the safety of whom he had worked. So that's a very basic introduction to what is going on from the perspective of a carpenter's union. <laughs> so who is this group? So they were the, called the capuchin. Hat. Hood. Hood. Monkey. All I could think of. Right. Or
0: like a capuchon is yeah. like a pointed hat, like right. a princess wears.
1: So the Catholic Encyclopedia catholic boom describes them as a short-lived confraternity founded in 1180 in france and they basically wanted to restore order to this area it was in major tumult
0: it's all traced back to this carpenter yes so this is truly a people's movement very populous at least from the beginning
1: sort of so at this time there were a lot of mercenary soldiers That had moved into France because there was so much conflict that they were regularly able to be hired. And they had been made illegal because of some treaties and temporary peace agreements between other nations. This is where they had all sort of been corralled into. And in France, the most raucous region at this time is Southern France.
0: So Southern France is full of mercenaries. Kicked out of other countries because they were too bad.
1: Yes. Now, there are these hired soldiers, most of which are foot soldiers, but some are more highly trained and have horses and things. And then there are, of course, knights and armor on horseback. That's going on, too. So, one writer who's actually done a lot of research on this, and it is hard to find, he writes, "...the mass of the population is indeed portrayed as a passive in military sense, and even in the consequence some have thought, enjoyed a certain immunity from the war's terrors because of this exclusion. But in fact, the mass of the population regularly suffered from the attentions of warriors. In medieval circumstances, battle was relatively rare. This was because both parties had to want to hazard all on a collision in an open field. Commanders knew that, in the words of Vegetus, it is preferable to subdue an enemy by famine, raids, and terror than in battle, where fortune tends to have more influence than bravery. So, a lot of the fighting is not happening out in the battlefield. What people are experiencing is extended sieges, plundering, raids.
0: That's why you have those fortified castles.
1: Right. People are going in and burning cities down, killing crops, cutting off water sources, etc. They're making life miserable for the common person. It doesn't matter if you're actually at the battle or not. And when there was a battle, often the winning side would take up refuge in the fortified town, and then the losing side would be like, oh, they're holed up in there? We can go lay siege.
0: We'll just take the entire country, sir.
1: William the Conqueror's biographer famously praised him for his methods of war that included things like this. He, parentheses, William the Bastard, Duke of Normandy.
0: I mean, use his full title.
1: Right. Sowed. Terror in the land by his frequent and lengthy invasions. He devastated vineyards, fields, and estates. He seized neighboring strongpoints and, where advisable, put garrisons in them. In short, he incessantly inflicted innumerable calamities upon the land. This is the desired way of doing things.
0: So, this is what's going on in Europe. Right.
1: And now everyone's kicked all the mercenaries to southern Gaul.
0: Wonderful. So, the south of France is a hellscape
1: <laughs> So we've got the 40 years War going on between Henry II, Duke of Aquitaine, who just decided he would have to lose and then you have all the conflict going on at Aragon, and all the kings there were fighting to lay claim to Provence and all the lands east of the Rome. And then in Languedoc, there were conflicts between Angevin and the Capetans. There was an abbot named Stephen of Saint Genevieve in Paris who followed the Bishop of Albana through the mountains and valleys through the vast wastelands of the savagery of robbers and the very image of death, through burnt villages and the ruins of houses where there was no security and nothing which did not threaten peace and life itself. Shit's bleak. Now, they were not exactly trying to avoid bothering civilians either. For example, in 1177, some nobles from Limousine, led by the Viscounts of Limoges, massacred 2,000 people of both sexes as they drove toward Rive. Common people couldn't voice outrage at the nobles who were ordering these people around, right? That would not go well for them. Of course not. So they had to get mad at the mercenaries. And they did.
0: But what are you going to do against the mercenaries?
1: Well, the church got involved. Oh. And they wrote a strongly worded letter.
0: Uh, Yes.
1: And so they decided to stigmatize people fighting for profit rather than for just cause.
0: okay. They're not fighting for God's... Grace or... Right. Yeah.
1: So they stigmatized the mercenaries, and then they stepped in and put together this formal canon. And it's called Canon 27 of the Third Lantern Council, which was held in 1179. So this essentially gives people authority to go after mercenaries
0: oh so this is what makes it legal legit for
1: a common man to stand up to mercenaries they decide they're heretics and they need to be stamped out so the church has weighed in the church has sanctioned this through canon 27
0: and there's nothing worse than a heretic at this time
1: (laughs) right that's pretty much our excuse for killing everything anyone who acted against these outlaws providing they were quote following the council of holy bishops and priests would receive a remission of two years' penance and will be placed under the protection of the church, just like those who undertake the journey to Jerusalem, meaning the Crusades. So they are authorizing a church sanctioned crusade against mercenaries.
0: Wow, that's awesome.
1: Now, interestingly, the word mercenaries is not used, it's the names of all those little groups like the Barbacones and things like that that are actually in the charter because the word mercenary was a virtual cognate for mercenarios. Which was a term used to describe men of the church who were corrupted by rich living. So that couldn't go in there. <laughs> because if those people start getting killed off, the point of this canon is totally <laughs> undermined. It? So, canon 27 calls for a crusade against hired soldiers, but doesn't say who should undertake said crusade. So basically, we need a hero.
0: Need a hero.
1: Holding up for a hero till the end of the Dark Ages. Plot point begging. For someone to come forward.
0: We need a Batman.
1: And there had been attempts to do things like this before. And they were like these big peace agreements. But this is the first time there's been like a legit call to action. So now we begin to get these historical accounts of Duran. And they vary greatly depending on who is telling them. the history. Right. So. So this is
0: our carpenter.
1: Our carpenter. It's like
0: Jesus. Oh God. You know they use that. Uh
1: huh. So Jeffrey... De Vigeot wrote his account of the Capuchins very shortly before his death. According to Geoffrey, a poor man of Lepoix, a carpenter called Peter Durandis, was inspired by a vision of the Virgin to approach the Bishop of Lepoy, urging him to preach an oath of peace. The Bishop was at first dismissive of the pious and humble man, but as the movement grew and organized itself, he was moved to support it. All who agreed to take the oath were required. Apparently, at the bidding of the Virgin to wear a white hood, blazoned with her image.
0: That is an awesome crest for a superhero. Right? The Virgin Mary.
1: And then Robert of Tourigny, who was the abbot of Mont Saint-Michel, wrote that a carpenter had a vision of the Virgin telling him to report to a bishop so that he would preach the peace and they would wear the hood with the icon of Our Lady And he goes on to describe that this movement was actually joined by clergy and people of every social group. Ringrod, who is a biographer of Philip Augustus, wrote in 1196, stated that God only sent aid to Duran, the poor man of La not to the mercenaries, not to the nobles, only to the humble man.
0: So God on his side. Mm -hmm. Who
1: had a vision shortly before the Feast of Assumption. And on that feast day, Bishop Peter... And a great assembly of princes and people listened to Durand speak, and they were moved to take the oath and wear white cloaks, with the image of the Virgin on them to keep the peace. And then a Benedictine monk, Gervais de Canterbury, wrote in 1188 that there was a carpenter who had a vision, and approached Bishop Peter, who spoke secretly to twelve good men, who agreed to support the fraternity, which spread quickly, enlisting rich and poor, clergy and laity, all who wore the hood with a leaden seal of the Virgin." Now, these are all very sympathetic accounts. These are all like, and it was awesome. But that's not all. There's
0: got to be the other side.
1: So, Robert of Auxerre, who began to write in 1202, he was very hostile in his writings. It says that the peace was first proclaimed by a man never named Humble Birth and Little Fortune. Like, writes it in and out very quickly. He was like, he was just some dude. And then, Gilles de Provence wrote a satire, La Babile, or La, La Bible, basically, after 1206, and he had a few hostile c- comments on Duran the Carpenter in this satire, and he proclaims that he swindled his Capuchin followers out of 200,000 livres. And in, you can see just in that short time period between the 1180 inception of Durand and his Virgin Mary visions, and these accounts that are coming out in like 1202, so just in the span of 20 years, this element's been labeled kind of subversive, and it's being retconned. Now the fact that he is of low birth is making people question his moral compass because he was disrupting social order and that starts to tick people off as they look back at it and they're like, what business did he have? Now that the immediate need is gone, it's way easier to cast him as a villain.
0: Right. Because they don't want a man of humble birth to get ideas. Right.
1: Right. So it's important to know that this was definitely just a movement. This was a movement to get the mercenaries out of southern Gaul. It was
0: not a revolution. Right, because it was working through the church in a way.
1: Right, they the were church sanctioned. sanctioned. Yeah, And this church could do that. They had the authority. And they weren't trying to overthrow anything. They were just trying to, like, maybe not have their houses burned down all the time. (laughs) Now, several contemporary writers say that magnates were threatened and terrorized by the Capuchins. Now, some of the writing suggests that they killed about 3,000 Barbicons. So, a bishop wrote later that, at this time, there arose in France a truly horrible and dangerous presumption, which began to drag all the poor people into a rebellion against their superiors and the extermination of their power. And so, this is written very shortly after. And it's this horrifying idea of this peasant rebellion that's going after anyone with a little power. He goes on to write, there was no longer fear or respect for superiors. All strove to acquire Liberty saying that it belonged to them from the time of Adam and Eve from the very day of creation. They did not understand that serfdom is punishment for sin. (laughs) The result was that there was no longer any distinction between the great and the small, but a fatal confusion tending to ruin the institution which rules us all through the will of God and the agency of the powers of this earth. This account goes on to say that Bishop Hugh brought the Capuchins to the town center at Gui and single-handedly suppressed the movement by taking away their hoods, and ordering them to go about bareheaded in all weather, which seems a fitting punishment since they had been trying to overthrow the entire social order.
0: Sure, at least I didn't get decapitated.
1: Apparently they weren't that bad. Is that is that is actually what put down the movement was taking away their hoods and being like, you don't get a hat.
0: I'm gonna go with the pockreful.
1: Like, but,
0: but amazing.
1: Sure. Now a lot of people wrote about like the moral rectitude of the order. They remarked that it unified all classes and groups, and also cite that it had an extraordinary discipline. The anonymous of Lyon even recorded their basically like clubhouse rules. No gamblers were permitted to be members. Members were not to wear rich or ostentatious clothing. They were not to carry knives. They were not allowed to enter taverns. They were prohibited from swearing false oaths. They were prohibited from lewd swearing, and they had to attend special masses and feasts dressed in their hoods. And they allowed priests, monks, etc., as well as women, to take the oath. But they were kept separate, and the priests, monks, and women were not expected to fight, but they were allowed to support and take part in, like, the social part of it. And there were membership dues. Six denarii were due each Pentecost.
0: Okay. I mean, you gotta pay for the dry cleaning.
1: So, this could happen at this time, because there had been this idea that if nobles were armed, these conflicts could be put down quicker, and so most everyone had been allowed to acquire some sort of arms. Before this happened. So, you know, like just anyone who could afford it was supposed to have like a horse and maybe like a club. Sure. So people had these things in their homes and actually could go out and
0: fight. So like a little Second Amendment thing. A
1: little Second (laughs) Amendment thing covering their own asses. And so these people could have access to arms. And they were very successful. And Duran was hailed as like a folk hero. Now, we don't know what actually stopped the movement, but it stopped abruptly in 1182.
0: It's hmm. the church probably put their foot down in some way. I'm sure
1: later it was recorded that the that they like attacked a knight who mm. was in charge of some mercenaries. They pissed like, the I, Yeah, they pissed. Off. The, it's very it's what murky found. what actually yeah. happened to the Capuchins, but they did exist. It was like a fraternity founded by a man of humble birth at a time when that was not an asset, and they kicked some serious ass. Like, they went and killed, like, 3,000 mercenaries and things like that. And they had, like, special masses that were said for them, and they would process through the streets in their white cloaks, and they were, like, a symbol. Before France knew it was going to have the French Revolution, they were, like, red, the blood of angry men.
0: They were seeking liberty.
1: They were seeking liberty. Or at least to not have their houses burned down.
0: <laughs> you know, you gotta start somewhere.
1: So... To me, this is a really good contrast to the Bieta Paoli and the Holy Vim. Like, that is a a top-down institution seeking to punish people who break out of their prescribed social role. This is a bottom-up institution, though it's sanctioned by the church, however briefly, um, that seeks to keep people from exercising their power all over the place and making their lives unbearable.
0: So we take this idea of this kind of social justice coming from the bottom up. The opposite of the Dirty hairy vigilante, we have to talk about Taxi Driver.
1: Is he a vigilante or just kind of a murderer?
0: You know, it depends on what definition you want to use, because aren't they all kind of psychotic murderers?
1: Yeah, except Batman who doesn't kill people.
0: (laughs) Superman either, right?
1: Oh my god, so disappointed.
0: So taxi driver, you have a completely different kind of anti-hero. Travis Bickle, played by
1: Robert De Niro,
0: is a Vietnam vet who finds that life in the U.S. has been turned upside down since he's been gone, and he returns to the gritty streets of New York City. So he's suffering from PTSD and insomnia, and so he starts driving a taxi at night. Where he literally sees the worst of the worst kind of people. Healthy. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. Lola's pimps, prostitutes, John's adulterous husbands. He even says he has to clean the back of his cab nightly to get rid of the cum, the sleaze, and the blood. Ew. But he does fall in love with a fair that he picks up. Betsy, played by Sybil Shepherd, who is a political aide to... Charles Palentine, And she tries to get him to volunteer for the campaign.
1: Good plan, Sybil Shepherd.
0: And so he gets her to come out on a date and showing how out of touch with reality he is. He decides to take her to a porno <sighs> on 42nd Street. Cool. Sends her flowers and cards, all which are returned to his apartment. You can see them rotting in the background. He meets the teenage prostitute, Iris.
1: Played by Jodie Foster.
0: When she was like 12. Yeah. <laughs> and he tries to help her flee but she has nowhere to go. So he fails with both women and he begins to stock up on guns and train for his planned assassination of Charles Palantine. He is toxic masculinity personified. (laughs) I was going to say that. Yes. So he is thwarted by the secret service when he attends a rally and decides instead of killing Charles Palantine, he's going to go free Iris, the teenage prostitute shoots a pimp, a mafioso and the brothel owner. Becomes a media hero, even drawing attention again from Betsy. But he rejects her, and drives off into the dirty, terrible world alone.
1: Because, let's be honest, Martin Scorsese directed this, not Steven Spielberg. Yeah.
0: <laughs> no. So he returns from the war broken, looking for some way to integrate back into society. Maybe i will save a teenage prostitute. I mean, we've all had those moments. Or become an assassin.
1: It's, you know, I like to keep my options open.
0: But there's this disenchantment with the vietnam war this rejection of the current corrupt political system the urban blight that's been allowed by the government you know this is all that other side of the coin of what death wish and dirty harry is about this
1: is why the punks are acting the way they do
0: exactly and he is the punk he shaves his head into the mohawk
1: i mean that's like signing up to be the punk
0: so paul schrader who also wrote Raging Bull and Last Temptation of Christ for Scorsese, wrote the script. And he was actually inspired by the diaries of Arthur Brimmer, who shot presidential candidate George Wallace in 1972.
1: Yeah, but George Wallace kind of
0: deserved it. Don't say that. (laughs) Sorry. And then you know who was inspired by Taxi Driver?
1: The guy who loved Jodie Foster.
0: And tried to assassinate Ronald Ronald Reagan. Reagan.
1: What's his name, Hinkley? Hinkley. Yeah.
0: Schrader decided to make Bigel... A Vietnam vet, because of the national trauma of the war, seemed to have been perfectly with Bickle's paranoid psychosis. But this vigilante film just portrays the evil operating in society. Cynicism and brutality. Everywhere the vigilante goes, he runs up against evil. And he can't figure out how to break out of that cycle.
1: So, we're back to, is it paranoia if it's all true? It's making it look justifiable, right? It's making his sense of disenfranchisement and the chip on his shoulder all look very justified.
0: Exactly. He has a reason. He's he's the personification of this like national trauma of the Vietnam War and how the counter counterculture went wrong. But it went wrong in the way that it wasn't successful, <laughs> not in the way they felt they could be.
1: He's been misused by the powers that be. Yes. But he's still kind of a bigot. Kind of a chauvinist.
0: He's toxic masculinity personified. Yes, yeah,
1: he is a little bit. So there's a little bit of like, are we still preserving the status quo or are we completely trying to upend it?
0: He's going to upend it in some way. Whatever don't know way, how. Maybe I'll assassinate somebody. Maybe I'll go rescue a teenage prostitute. Maybe I'll find love. I don't know.
1: <laughs> so around the same time as Taxi Driver comes out, Which, fun side note, if you're ever in Austin, you can go to the Ransom Center and see all the film memorabilia from Taxi Driver, including Robert De Niro's taxi license and stuff. For whatever reason, they have acquired that there, and they have it out like on permanent display. So, should you be bored one day in Austin? Because
0: they have De Niro's collection. Yeah. He method-acted that. Yes. And so he went and spent a lot of time driving a taxi in New York in the middle of the night.
1: (laughs) But around the same time as films like Dirty Harry and Death Wish and Taxi Driver are coming out, we get another moment in film history. We get the black exploitation genre. Yes. So, at this time people are trying to capitalize on the urban audience or the African American audience, and so they decide to start making these films starring black cast for black people. Crazy crazy idea. <laughs> I know, right. But they really, like, emphasize the idea that there were African-American people behind the camera and that it was, like, being made by black people for black people in the moment of the black power Mo- movement. This is where they're going with it. Yeah.
0: And that's, that's the, yeah, the the black power movement.
1: Right. Yeah. And lo and behold, from the exploitation genre arrives one of cinema's first leading men of color in an action role shaft i'm talking about shaft so it comes out in 1971 it's set in harlem following john shaft subtle played by richard roundtree and he is a private investigator and he's tapped to find the missing daughter of a harlem crime kingpin named bumpy jones and his daughter marcy has been kidnapped by the Italian-ish, I'm assuming Italian, Mafia.
0: Are they just like generic Mafia? <laughs> mafia. Yeah. Just Mafia.
1: So he's investigating the disappearance, and he learns that the conflicts between the Mafia and the Uptown crew have resulted in a series of murders and retaliations. Now, the public at large perceives what is happening as purely racially motivated. They don't know that there's this underlying crime beef between these two people cartels. And so the threat looms for an all-out race war. So this is not, again, not subtle. Not like,
0: subtle. Mm, in, in there's least, no subtlety. is not
1: about that idea. This is full-on talking about race. So he successfully rescues Marcy. There's like even a like Ocean's Eleven-style breakout of her from a hotel, wearing disguises, things, many fights. Many fights. But the action that takes place in this major set piece of rescuing Marcy results in more tensions between the Harlem group and the mafia. So he goes to this payphone to call into his police contact, Vic, who has been working with him kind of throughout the duration of the film, just sort of turning a blind eye to what's going Mm -hmm, on. mm -hmm. And he's like, "Ah, I think maybe things are worse, even though you save the girl. Could you please fix the situation? And Shaft basically says, fix it yourself, laughs, hangs up on him, and walks away.
0: (laughs) Damn right.
1: (laughs) Okay, so that won an Oscar. That song did win an Oscar.
0: Yeah, Isaac Hayes. (laughs) Yes. And the bar keys.
1: And it is fabulous. He does the whole soundtrack, and it is funky and fabulous. And Richard Roundtree is the only person to ever play Shaft proper. Now, you may be saying, but what about Samuel L. Jackson? He plays Shaft, too different individual. And now next year there's going to be a movie called Son of Shaft. Yes. Which will debut in 2019 and John, and Roundtree and Samuel L. Jackson will be in it. Yes. Along with a new character who <laughs> plays his son, uh Shaft Jr. Of course. As opposed to Shaft 2. As opposed to, to Shaft. So this comes out wildly popular maintains its spot as a cult classic, and it opens the door to a new world of vigilante movies, because now you have people who not only are dealing with how they've been wronged personally, but this idea that we must combat society at large that you see kind of undergirding films like Dirty Harry and Death Wish, where it's like, society is the problem, I can kill them all, and there's still going to be a problem. Yeah times two say say black folks
0: <laughs> by the way
1: <laughs> don't know if you know this but we've been saying that for years and so now you have somebody who is completely justified and feeling like the system is corrupt right right <laughs> and has a hell of a vendetta and so shaft is like the iconic exploitation action film but there is another little pocket of movies that pops out of the black exploitation genre That features strong female leads. What? (laughs) I know. It's crazy. We can't talk about the black exploitation genre without talking about motherfucking Pam Grier. Oh, my God. She's amazing. So she was lambasted by a lot of feminists when she first came out. And, like, the black community tried to say that she was portraying them in a negative light because she took her top off and stuff. And I I don't hear any of it. Like, I think she's awesome. It's an um, old feminist movement. Yeah. Um, the feminist
0: movement is like, take your top off if you want to.
1: <laughs> and she says things like that, too. She says that she believes that there is male power and female power, and they're very different, and you should never lose your female power. Because <laughs> she's bad. Tattoo
0: tattooed um, on your ass.
1: So she came out and she starred in a couple of really enduring classics during this time. And her big debut was in a movie called Coffee. And it was released in 1973. And she plays a nurse who's just called Coffee. We don't know if it's first name, last name, duration
0: of the film. But it's like, you like your coffee, black.
1: Oh, she's coffee and she'll cream you, was the tagline. So subtle, so subtle. Yeah. So she's seeking revenge for the death of her younger sister, who died in a drug-related incident. And so, naturally, she poses as a prostitute in her time off from being an OR nurse. Now, she acts like she needs fixed, and she's willing to do anything to get it, and she convinces drug dealers and mafia bosses, etc., to take her back to their homes, uh, where she kills them. Crams them! And then she washes up and goes back to the operating room.
0: So she's also a professional, smart, intelligent woman. Yes. That's awesome.
1: I know. Now, she is friends with this good guy cop. Like, he's actually a good guy. Uh, who's named Carter. But there are lots of dirty cops, obviously. And she only believes that he's not a dirty cop when she sees that he does not bend to the bribes of the mob the way that others in his precinct do. And other people in his precinct have been taking enforcers to visit Carter at his home while Coffee is visiting him. No one knows this. So they arrive, they beat the shit out of Carter, and Coffee's pissed. And so she decides she's going to go whole hog on this Crusade rampage. And then she targets a pimp called King George and a mafia boss. And she poses this Jamaican prostitute to target George. And then she gets into this big brawl with other working girls and wins. And he's like, I must have you. And she's like, cool. And so that's how she gets in with him. She plans to murder Vitroni, the mob boss, but she's ambushed by his guards. And she lies and tells Vitroni that King George ordered her to kill him. And so then they send people out to go kill King George. So she's very smart. She's manipulating everything. And then she finds out that her congressman run-in boyfriend has betrayed her. And he's in on the whole thing. And she begs him to save her life when she's like brought before him. And he's like, I don't know who she is. And so she is not going to have that reprieve. And at some point she switches out all the coke for sugar. Perfect. And pretends to be high when she gets injected with it because they're going to do terrible things to her and they're injecting her with drugs, but it's sugar. And she's fine, surprised, breaks out, kills everyone, then goes back to her ex-boyfriend, I guess, at this point's house and holds a gun on him. This is the guy that's running for Congress. And she's about to forgive him. And some white girl walks out of the bedroom. uh uh-uh. And so she shoots him in the crotch Sounds a little yeah. and um, And <laughs> then she walks down the beach. You know, fun. So people had varying opinions on this film.
0: I'm sure they did.
1: Karen Ross, a critic, wrote, Let black audiences enjoy the sight of heroes kicking the white system and winning, even while condemning the violence and recognize the implausibility. It allowed blacks the ultimate escape to cheer on the heroine that fought corruption and crime and then leave the theater to be blighted by racism in society. So she's like, yeah, that's great. Go have fun for an hour, but it still sucks when you get out here. But extremely accurate. Roger Ebert praised the film. Oh, yeah. Believable female lead, he says, and noted that Greer was an actress of a beautiful face and astonishing form and that she possessed a kind of physical life. Missing from many other attractive actresses. (laughs) Okay. I don't know what that means, but I think it's nice.
0: Let's go with nice. Not creepy at all.
1: (laughs) So she comes in, solidifies herself as like this badass bitch in coffee. And so she has to have a follow up vehicle. Meanwhile, she is being offered like supporting actress roles and like romantic lead roles. And she's just not taking them. She just won't do it. And so she is going in complete and total. All my girls have to be strong. Everyone I play on screen has to have a backbone. Kind of love her. But she has to have a follow-up. Of course. And so I went to go look up the plot synopsis for her next movie, Foxy Brown.
0: Foxy Brown. Foxy
1: Brown. And I found these three summaries on IMDb. And I'm going to share them with you now. I'm so excited. (laughs) A sexy black woman. Foxy Brown seeks revenge when her government agent boyfriend Michael is shot down by gangsters led by the kinky couple of Steve Elias and Miss Catherine. I'm in. <laughs> next, next, a sexy, voluptuous black woman. Okay. <laughs> named Foxy Brown is on a rampage when her boyfriend is killed by a government agent. He is a government agent, anyway. Using her body as a tool of attraction, and her afro, and her gun is a deadly weapon. It's up to Foxy to avenge her boyfriend's murder.
0: The gun in the Afro is amazing.
1: (laughs) It doesn't say it's in the Afro. It says and the Afro. But it is. Yes. Well, it's a pick. It's like a sharpened... I don't know if that's the gun in the Afro movie.
0: Uh, Oh, she pulls a gun out of her Afro in some movie. Some movie
1: is awesome. And then the third. A voluptuous black woman takes a job as a high-class prostitute in order to get revenge on the mobsters who murdered her boyfriend.
0: It's all very confusing.
1: Okay, so... I just thought I'd point out, like, that all three of these, like, the first one is a sexy black woman. Second one is a sexy, comma, voluptuous, comma, black woman.
0: I mean, there is sex appeal. Like, that is, you can't, you can't completely negate that. The movie is
1: characterized by her femaleness and her blackness, is what I'm saying. Like, that is, like, what people remember
0: about it. Right. And those are important elements. <laughs> yes.
1: But that's what sticks in the popular imagination. It's a very similar film to Coffee, In this film, she's also seeking revenge for a drug related death of her boyfriend, this time instead of her younger sister. It ends when she goes to the Black Panthers for help, though, this time, and they go and kill one of her captors. She's kind of human trafficked in the background of this one. And so the Black Panthers go to get Mr. Steve, who is, or Steve, who is the partner of Miss Catherine, and they cut off his genitals and bring him to Foxy in a jar. And then she takes the jar to Miss Catherine and shows it to her and kills her henchman before shooting her in the arm. And Miss Catherine's like, oh, finish me. It hurts so much. And Foxy goes, no, I want you to suffer.
0: But, you know, it also puts the Black Panthers, who were very much one of those groups where it depended on who you were <laughs> about if they were. The
1: good guys. The
0: good guys are, you know, the end of the <laughs> country. You know,
1: right? It gives them a supporting role in this noble quest.
0: Yeah, they become this group, like the Capuchins of, mm-hmm. of humble birth. Mm-hmm. You know, coming up and rising up against the man—literally <laughs> the man, like oh, literally, like the man with a capital M.
1: Yeah. <laughs> so that's Pam Greer.
0: Fuck And of course, that's who Beyonce is. Like spoofing in the Austin Powers movies, right? Important note:
1: if you don't know what she looks like, just Google, please. <laughs> just please go Google her. She's fabulous, and she's still fabulous. She's like two honorary doctorates, and like opened a health food farm center in Colorado, and so like <laughs> amazing. she's amazing. So there have been female vi- vigilantes before. This is not a solely fictional phenomena, of course not. Now. They did not hide guns in their afros most of the time. Most that we know of. of.
0: That was secret.
1: But one key example of what women can and will do when given the authority to do so is to micromanage the behavior of other women. Wonderful. And this is the case in Oxford. In 1888, there was a vigilance committee, but it was revived around the time of the First World War. And it was based on an amendment which provided for the protection of women and girls, the suppression of brothels, and other related purposes.
0: Moral problem. Now,
1: they were self-appointed women patrols, and they worked in pairs and wore armbands and patrolled the streets to record and deter acts of immorality. Though having no official status or power to arrest anyone.
0: That wasn't going to stop though.:
1: This is Gladys Kravitz on steroids. Nosy neighbor turned up to 11. So they put together this four-page report, which was circulated by the committee. It had four major sections, facts, results, causes, and remedies. And this was marked classified, confidential.
0: Super confidential. It was only recently discovered.
1: Like in a filing cabinet yes. in the back of some office somewhere. So in the facts section, they write, a distinction was drawn between those who practice prostitution as a permanent social disease and what were described as temporary outbreaks of immorality caused by unusual conditions created by the war. Now, the latter criteria, the temporary outbreaks of immorality, that was a paramount concern for the committee.
0: Especially related to the war effort.
1: Yes, because some women were just of bad character and that couldn't be helped. But the corruptibles, we could save them. Now, the primary focus of the report was on the behavior of young women, whom they seemed to regard as the only people who could possibly be expected to govern morality. This casts men as helpless oafs who are just boys will be boys, whatever.
0: It's true. It's so true.
1: I will slap you. <laughs> it's not true. In case you're wondering. Clarification. <laughs> it's not true. But they put the impetus of safeguarding British morality... On young British women, boys will be boys, they say. One entry in the report reads, "Quite young girls, twelve to fifteen, loiter about, whose dress and frivolous, not to say impertinent, behaviour show that they are deliberately laying themselves out to attract men." It also enumerated immoral behaviours, and it concludes that it's a considerable amount of immorality, as well as of. Foolishness going on among the younger Oxford girls. This is probably the most serious part of the whole problem.
0: Foolishness. So his foolishness was like a nicer way of saying like they're being kind of slutty.
1: Yeah. They are hoeing it up is what that, that means now in 2018. A hundred years later, we just say they hoeing it up. So the results of the study mentioned a small rise in the number of illegitimate births in Oxford and the surrounding villages, though the degree of illegitimacy was no indication of the real immorality going on owing to the prevalence of abortion and forced marriages. So they don't actually go to the pains of defining feeble-mindedness in their report, but they do mention it as one of the contributing factors to this moral decay that's going on. was judged to result in an increased prevalence of venereal disease, prostitution and immorality
0: so everyone was just foolish feeble-minded young girls
1: yes in addition an examination of 848 wartime marriage and birth certificate was used to indicate that the birth of the first child had often taken place in the first few months of marriage and that the resulting hasty nuptials led only to long unhappy relationships
0: Oh, my God. Can you imagine? They're like, okay, we need to go to the court court and get all the records of the burrs.
1: (laughs) And see how close. Do some math.
0: We need a spreadsheet.
1: We don't have a spreadsheet. We're going to have to write things. This
0: must have taken so much time to figure out. I
1: know. Didn't you have a victory garden to tend to or something? (laughs) Go grow some carrots. Causes. Next section of the report. Now, it did make a clear distinction between permanent and temporary causes of immorality. And they were especially concerned with the temporary causes. They pointed out close links between drinking and prostitution. Every time I drink, I want to go sell my body. I mean, who doesn't? And connections between women's new economic freedoms and the family breakdown. Now, there's also literature and other entertainments, which have become popular, they say, which stimulate sexual ideas And they were considered to be very damaging. And they also defined one cause of the temporary immorality haze as war fever.
0: What's war fever?
1: A state of mind of which everyone is more or less conscious, half excitement and half melancholy, in which the ordinary interests and standards of life are obscured, and a kind of recklessness drives one to extremes of vice almost as easily as extremes of virtue.
0: Oh my! Yes,
1: very, very serious. What are we going
0: to do about this?
1: Well, lucky for you, there is a remedy section. Oh, well,
0: thank God. I mean, besides obviously just patrolling the streets and like wagging our fingers
1: at people. No, no, even for Jesus, and that's British Jesus. So there are two subsections of the remedy section okay. of this paper, and there are negative curative and positive preventative. The negative or curative remedies are the presence of an assistant provost marshal to direct the work of the military to make sure that they are not allowed to go intermingle And boosting the powers of women's patrols. If you just give us more power, everyone thing would be fine. Of course. Uh, Increase of special constables. Additional street lighting to expose unsociable activity. Oh, no. Deporting women convicted of immoral acts out of the city. And greater patrolling of parks, rivers, and towpaths. You know... Canoodling spots. Oh, no. And then the positive or preventative were provisions for counter attractions like clubs, concerts, and dances, and more refreshment places.
0: Without alcohol, I'm sure.
1: Which was perceived to be, you know, like something we can do, so we had some positive ideas too. It's not really going to fix anything. It's kind of the tone they take. They wrote, it will do little good. They find the streets more attractive.
0: So this is definitely our first type of vigilantism. This is top-down trying to prevent the moral decay of society.
1: Right. They actually talk about how the British women behaving so inappropriately was having such a negative impact on the Indian immigrants who'd come to England because they would think that this behavior was fine and then we'd introduce double the problem because they're modeling their behavior after these women and what are we going to do if they bring their crazy immigrant ways and mix them with these loose morals, these war fever girls, and (gasps) clutch my pearls.
0: (sighs) poor England.
1: Well, I mean, it was bad, but (laughs) it wasn't because of
0: canoodling. Poor England's morals. Do you have another side of the coin? We need another side of the coin.
1: There are two sides to every coin. And so we must look at the other side of the coin, the the oppressed rising up with vigilante vengeance, etc. And for that, we must look to India.
0: I thought that's who the British were worried about.
1: Well, yes, they were going to corrupt all the Indian women. And the Indian women said, no, no, that's fine. That's not the problem. It's kind of our entire social structure. (laughs) Fine. So, this is much more recent. And according to writings about this group, the unofficial headquarters of India's Pink Gang, the largest women's vigilante group in the world, is a small pink house in the dusty agricultural town of Badusa, about 250 miles south of the majestic Taj Mahal.
0: Well, that's fitting.
1: Now, the concrete box shaped structure belongs to Sampat Devi Paul, the self proclaimed commander in chief of the Gulabi Gang or the Pink Gang. The
0: Pink Gang.
1: And they are known as the Pink Gang because they wear pink. I'm talking freshman, prom, homecoming, neon. Neon. Pink. I look good in this color. Ain't nobody look good in this color. Pretty,
0: pink. pretty and pink.
1: Pretty and pink.
0: one might say
1: but they are loud in their pink and obviously they're pink saris which is pretty badass as uniforms go
0: so what's this gang doing ruffians
1: well yes so they are ruffians because they're a gang for sure of course and everyone knows that but they are very concerned with being like IRL SJWs you could say
0: they're not just Posting on Twitter.
1: Right. It's not slacktivism if you have a stick.
0: Ooh, they have sticks? They do
1: have sticks, and they have a special name called Lathis. Okay. And they're beating sticks.
0: I was about to ask. <laughs>
1: They carry those, and I don't think they speak particularly softly, though, uh, much to the chagrin of Teddy Roosevelt, I'm sure. In addition to having their beating sticks, which they use on trifling men, I think that is the technical term, trifling. These would be men that like beat their wives or it's more in-laws, trifling. in-laws that try to, you know, set people on fire because of dowry debts. I think or like, it's a
0: level above, you know.
1: There's a lot of extortion and dowries and that or rape women, you know, those things.
0: Bad things.
1: Bad things. They're actually called criminals. We have a name for them. It's not trifling. I was joking. So she will, either her or one of her lieutenants, will see people around 12 women a day that come in looking for help of one kind or another. At the time of this report, one of her most recent cases was helping the father of a 17 year old girl who had been raped and jailed on a false charge. Paul herself says, There are so many struggles that women have to go through here, it never seems to stop. We don't like using violence, but sometimes that's the only way people listen. Now, the group is not particularly well-funded, or they were not in 2010. I think things have changed for them. Because membership dues were around $4, but for that price, you got your badass sorry uniform. It's a good deal. Yeah?
0: So what do the police think about them?
1: Um... Well, okay, you remember how I said that she was helping the father of the 17-year-old girl? That's a good case to, like, illustrate it. Sure. The girl's name is Shalou Nassad, and she'd been gang raped by a group of men, including one that was identified as a member of the local legislature. Oh, God. She went to police, but instead of having her statement taken, she was arrested. The girl. And it turned out that the attacker had called the police and reported her for theft. No. And sort of inceptioned... Her
0: arrest. Damn.
1: So her father, after she is arrested on false charges, goes to Powell. And he says, I was nervous and crying and somebody suggested I go to the gang. And so she organized an agitation in front of the police station and later in front of the legislator's home. You know, picket lines, etc. And eventually, that legislator was arrested. Oh, wow. And the heir to Gandhi's political throne, Raul Gandhi, traveled 370 miles to come and meet the girl.
0: So I guess he's not big on that non-violence thing.
1: (laughs) Yeah. But that's a case of it going, right. And you can see the tensions that are created by picketing in front of the police station or turning in members of the legislature for crimes that they fully anticipated getting away with. It doesn't go over so well. And... Also complicating matters is the fact that many within the pink gang have begun to run for public office. And some people see this as a good thing. There's one author named Atreyi Sin, who is a fellow at the University of Manchester, and they say that taking part in formal politics can legitimize their role. Powell says that she has no plans in backing down from the political fray. Quote, People have tried to assassinate me, arrest me, abuse me, and shut me up. But I won't be quiet until things improve for the women here. Now there was a bit of a kerfuffle in twenty fourteen. There were allegations of misuse of funds on Pal's part and it seems like the the structure of the group may have begun to buckle a bit under the publicity and prominence that they'd achieved. But as of last year, Paul was running for office again.
0: Fantastic.
1: So, I don't know exactly how things have panned out, but it seems that they are still alive and kicking ass.
0: Fantastic. So, wonderful example of a modern-day group of people of humble birth coming and rising up against people in power. Mm-hmm. that are doing criminal acts. Right. I mean, what we've been talking about are American movies and not American Vigilantes. Yeah. yeah. We've got to talk about this because America was founded on vigilantism.
1: Or revolution. Vigilantes and revolution must be understood separately, right? Like it's not In about a, a political movement necessarily. It's about...
0: It depends on what you describe as political, because it's it's law and order, especially in their minds.
1: I'd say a citizen's arrest is is one thing, and I wouldn't say you're a vigilante if you do that. But I'd say deciding that that guy is definitely guilty of murder and going in and shooting him in his sleep is probably being a vigilante.
0: Right, it's crossing the line. It's crossing the line. And I promise you, there were plenty of people crossing the line in the American Revolution. But the thing is that America has this really weird relationship with violence.
1: Yes, I would agree with that.
0: It's very, very obvious. But how we characterize this amount of violence is what's so unique. Because it has this mythic significance, as one historian said. This myth has been assigned to the kinds of violence that we've experienced but also the forms of the symbolic violence that we imagine or invent. And the political uses to which we put that symbolism. Okay, so you can even think of John McCain. What did he run as? What was his, like, term? Him and Sarah Palin.
1: He was maverick.
0: Mavericks!
1: Who's maverick.
0: They were Wild West heroes. They were bucking the system.
1: Delivering their own brand of justice. No party line. Right. A so. man on his own against all the odds. Which fair fair i think if you spend like 5 years in a POW camp in vietnam you you get to call yourself a maverick
0: yeah but it's that that myth resonated that right. idea resonated because people in america have grown up with these ideas of this vigilante justice these people that will buck the system and fix what was wrong and make it right whether it's either form of type of vigilanteism that we're talking about you know top down or Bottom up. Right. And no better place to see this is in the stories of the Wild West.
1: I mean, when I first learned the word vigilante, it was from old west movies and then it went out of my vocabulary for a few years and i didn't think about it you know i'm talking about a kid
0: yeah but it was in that subconscious (laughs) right
1: and then i heard it again associated with superheroes and now that's what i think of
0: right right
1: since i've been so saturated in that world but the first place i ever heard the word vigilante was definitely in watching turner classic movies westerns with your with my dad
0: (laughs) Well, stories of the Wild West were influenced by a larger American ideology, and you can see that change as the times change. But there's this mythology that was developed that defines the roles of violence and justice in the course of this westward expansion, industrialization, and urbanization, the creation of what America is today. This was almost this symbolic proxy conflict against the wilderness and its inhabitants, and our goals to push forward and create our manifest destiny.
1: Right. It allowed us to imagine a past that never existed. When we were thinking of the settlers going going forth, it was like, this is the way it used to be for everyone. Not really. People came over and lived in villages and had settlements that were very organized and did not go out by themselves and live in cabins until later when squatter's rights took, it, took over and made it a thing. But that's for another day. <laughs> but this idea of the rugged individual self-reliance while one of my favorite essays ever written is also one of the biggest american curses <laughs> because we we imagine that that is the way we all were in our natural state and we've been corrupted by a system
0: and the, yeah the way we should be right let's tell a story
1: a story i the love stories. wild west gunslingers
0: gunslingers gold rush town
1: white hats black hats gray
0: hats Always gray hats. Have you listened to the show? Huh. So let's go to the Idaho Territory. No, why not?
1: What do they have in Idaho besides potatoes? It's the
0: Idaho Territory. Okay, fine. A so big swath like of the- land. <laughs> yes. So there are Montana Gold Rush ghost towns, Virginia, and Nevada City that grew up in the gold strike of 1863. John White made a crucial discovery on July 28, 1862. While exploring a creek that he later renamed Grasshopper Creek.
1: Good job, you.
0: He Mr. found
1: gold, gold. gold in the thar hills, right? Yes. In that thar creek, in,
0: I guess. In, in areas around there, they found more gold. And word spread quickly. Soon there were thousands and thousands of fortune hunters in an unbroken 14-mile string of gold rush settlements that briefly constituted the biggest town between Minneapolis and San Francisco. At the center was Virginia City, which was originally named Verana for the wife of Jefferson Davis, but was changed later by union sympathizers. Now, near Grasshopper Creek, the town of Bannock was founded. And near Elder Gulch, the other big gold strike was Virginia City and Nevada City.
1: Gulch is the ugliest word.
0: Gulch. Now, these are ghost towns now. You can visit them. They're classics. They have saloons and stables and dry goods stores and brothels. And there are even several movies filmed there. Cool. You can also see the Hangman's Building. Ooh. Which has a rope-chafed beam still exposed. That's spooky. Oh, and there are plenty of ghosts, too. I
1: love a good ghost story. Is this a ghost story? Nah, But there are definitely ghosts there. Okay.
0: (laughs) But where did they come from?
1: This is a ghost origin story.
0: <laughs> so the area was unorganized, isolated, could only be reached by horse or treacherous stagecoach. Now in this area where gold was plentiful and transportation was insecure, effective law and order was lacking. And so you know what that means.
1: Only way to stop a bad guy with a gun. More bad guys with guns. <laughs> <laughs> so by late
0: 1863, it was said that thefts and murders along the routes in and around Elder Galt should become a concern. Writers Thomas Dinsdale, who is writing right after these events, said estimated that at least 102 travelers were killed by robbers in the fall of 1863. Damn. And many more travelers left the region and were never heard from again. So on October 13th, one man was killed by a road agent, Chris Lowry. The man Lloyd Magruder was an Idaho merchant leaving Virginia City with $12,000 in gold dust from goods he had sold. He had hired several men to accompany him back to Lewiston, Idaho.
1: Where where were they? How did he...
0: He just hired some guys.
1: Okay, so how did they get to him if he had... Were they like bodyguards?
0: They were supposed to be.
1: Yeah, they were not good ones.
0: No, they were the people that robbed him.
1: Oh, fine. Oh, that's fine. That's a good old-fashioned low-down double cross.
0: On October 25th, the Peabody and Caldwell stagecoach was robbed between rattlesnake ranch and bannock by two road agents one of the passengers lost twenty five hundred dollars they felt the road agents were probably frank parish and george ives they just felt it well they saw him and they thought that's who, who it looked like now they reported to the sheriff sheriff Plummer, but he did little to seek out these culprits and suspicions arose
1: they thought he was trifling
0: and more stories began to arise Groups of bandits and highwaymen. On November 13th, a teenage boy, Henry Tilden, was in the employ of Wilbur Sanders and Sidney Edgerton to locate and corral some horses that were owned by them. Now, when he went to get these horses... This teenage boy? Yes. Okay. He was confronted by three armed road agents. He was carrying very little money, and he was allowed to leave unmolested.
1: A road agent is like a highwayman? Yeah. Okay, so it's a bad guy. It sounds like a good guy. guy. no.
0: Okay. This is not AAA.
1: That's what it sounds like. We're here to help you with your broken wagon tongue, ma'am. Thanks for using OnStar. I should have bought more axles. But these are not those people.
0: Oh, no. Okay. And now he says he was allowed to leave with no problems and with the warning that if he talked, they would kill him.
1: He said that?
0: That's what the teenage boy told him. Told his
1: employers. uh, Okay, well, my point being... He told them?
0: (laughs) Yeah, he didn't keep his tongue real tight. He he looked scuffled, he'd fallen from his horse, and he wasn't able to do the job they were trying to pay him to do. And this was his story.
1: Is he going to start identifying people that were dancing with the devil in the pale moonlight?
0: Yeah, he recognized one of the robbers. It was the sheriff. Fuck me. Sheriff Plummer. He recognized Plummer's pistol and the red lining of his long riding coat during the holdup.
1: You know what? You should not be that fancy of a dresser
0: I know. if you're trying to be anonymous. You shouldn't have an, a villain outfit.
1: <laughs> right?
0: He was wearing a black hat?
1: Twirling its mustache and looking at me quite menacingly. Obviously, that is not what the boy sounded like. That's the radio know. reenactment uh, right. from the 1930s. Yeah,
0: definitely. <laughs> so, they really, most people discounted the report. They didn't go and, you know hang the sheriff right then but they were like noted it's stuck it's stuck in the back of their mind so just a few short weeks later the aj oliver stagecoach was robbed on its way to bannock and this time they said it was george ives and whiskey bill graves
1: whiskey bill graves is a shame of a name from this long ago like it should exist now in the present
0: i can start calling you whiskey bill graves i'll take it but they get less than a thousand dollars in gold and treasury notes
1: Is is a treasury note just like currency?
0: Yeah, you could exchange it for gold or silver or whatever. Okay. But they didn't have... Paper money. Yeah. Now, also that month, Conrad Coors had traveled to Bannock from Deer Lodge, Montana with $5,000 in gold dust to buy cattle. He had a conversation with Sheriff Plummer, and he felt like this conversation was very suspicious.
1: Do we have a report of what that conversation was?
0: I know. He just felt like he was sizing him up.
1: Like trying to recruit him for some, some
0: oh, dirty no, deeds? that he was going to rob, rob him. Rob him. Yeah. Oh. So while he was camped overnight, he st- heard some rustling in the woods. Mm-hmm. And he found Jargives and Dutch John Wagner scouting out the place.
1: Up to no good.
0: Exactly. They were armed with shotguns.
1: Dutch John Wagner. Right? I love it.
0: And he says they chased him on horse, but he got away.
1: Well, he has lots of good information.
0: Right? And so there was a few other attacks, too, and people started to get suspicious. Mm-hmm. Very suspicious. Are you telling me white
1: people got nervous, Jacob?
0: About the other white people.
1: Oh, God, you know it's bad.
0: <laughs> they felt... know they
1: have no brown people in their community <laughs> when that happens.
0: They felt like there must be a conspiracy, a single gang of outlaws.
1: Ah, yes. What white people do when there are no brown people around. Conspiracy theories. Yes. <laughs>
0: And of course, these road agents, this gang of outlaws, was under the control of Sheriff Henry Plummer.
1: Bam, bam, bam! Any proof of this, or is it just all.
0: So, this was written up right after by Thomas Dinsdale, who's actually British.
1: Interesting.
0: And a school teacher, our teacher. And he said. It is probable that there never was a mining town of the same size that contained more desperados and lawless characters than did Bannock. During the winter of 1862-63, while a majority of the citizens were of the Sterling stock, which was ever furnished the true American pioneers, there were great numbers of the most desperate class of roughs and road agents. The usual arms of a road agent were a pair of revolvers, a double-barreled shotgun or large bore with the barrels cut down mm. and to this invariably added a knife or dagger thus armed and mounted on fleet well-trained horses and being disguised with blankets and masks the robbers awaited their prey in ambush when near enough they sprang out of a keen run with leveled shotguns and usually gave the word halt throw up your hands you sons of bitches
1: They have a catchphrase.
0: Now he said the headquarters of these marauders were the Rattlesnake Ranch.
1: Of course it was, because if you didn't want it to be a lair, you wouldn't name it that.
0: But all this comes to a head when early in December, William Old Man Clark sent his young German employee, Nicholas Tybalt, to fetch a pair of mules from a ranch on the stinking water river.
1: (laughs) This is a cartoon.
0: Can't make it up. Okay. The boy rode to the ranch, which was owned by George Ives.
1: George Ives. And he's been identified by multiple people who have been on the wrong end of a robbery.
0: exactly, As
1: being one of the ringleaders.
0: Now, this boy never returned.
1: <gasps> no! Now, a
0: few days later, a hunter found a frozen naked Bonnie in the foothills outside of Virginia City. When he brought the mangled corpse to town... Townspeople immediately knew.
1: It was the young German of the Tybalt. old man.
0: Yes. Yeah. So Clark and the other men rode out to George Ives' ranch and arrested him. Locals dragged large flat wagons into town, and atop these platforms, the trial unfolded.
1: Trial, you say? Oh,
0: yes. Okay. Determined that Ives should not go free, they convinced the jury of minors, as well as the crowd, that Ives was guilty of butchering Tybalt.
1: Did they, like, decide that by a round of applause? Or. <laughs>
0: A jury of minors. Hearing the verdict of guilty, the crowd dragged Ives to an unfinished building, tossed a rope across a beam, and strung it around Ives' neck. He begged for time he wanted to write a final letter to his mother, but Biedler, who was a fervent Republican who had been involved in the bleeding Kansas incident, oh, fine. shouted, Ask him how long he gave the Dutchman. Oh, no. And with that, he was hung.
1: Even the dialogue, oh my god.
0: And his final words? Oh, tell me. Alec Carter killed the Dutchman.
1: Oh, yeah. If I go out, I'm totally blaming someone else. I'm going to point a finger at some unsuspecting.
0: But that beam, that beam you can still see. I want to see the beam. In the ghost town.
1: Can we go see the beam? Can we still get there by horse?
0: Probably. (laughs) I bet you can pay a van to get out there. So what are they going to do?
1: Go kill Alec Carter, obviously.
0: Get a posse together. Here we go. So the men of Virginia City mounted a posse and rode out to apprehend Alec Carter for the murder of Nicholas Tybalt. Haven't
1: they already killed someone for the murder of Nicholas Tybalt?
0: Well, he should have spoke up earlier. Okay. Now, they'd been discussing the idea of a vigilance committee because there had been another big vigilant committee incident in San Francisco just a few years prior.
1: And that's what you'll see if you Google Old West Vigilantes. Like That's your first search result.
0: Yeah, but we like to do the obscure stars. Yeah. <laughs> so they wanted to make sure that they were, you know, doing it right. So they had one of the town elders or, you know, town leaders write up a document authorizing it. Saying, we the undersigned, uniting ourselves in a party for the laudable purpose of arresting thieves and murderers and recovering stolen property. Do pledge ourselves upon our sacred honor, each to all others, and solemnly swear that we will reveal no secrets, violate no laws of right, and never desert each other or our standard of justice. So help us God. As witness, our hand and seal this 23rd of December, A.D. 1863.
1: So all this is happening at Christmas. I'm sorry, my uh, mind immediately picked that up. Um, yeah, two days before. Mm-hmm. This is not festive. I guess it is. I guess if you're in the posse, it's festive. Be of good cheer. Now that I'm over their bad timing, it sounds quite a lot like the the charter of the Vimic
0: Court. It does, right? So they later drew up a full formal set of regulations saying there would be no means of appealing its decisions, and the only punishment that shall be inflicted by this committee is death. Damn! <laughs> right? So in the search for Alex Carter, they're going to find Alex Carter. They encounter another guy that's a suspected ruffian, a okay. suspected member of the gang of road agents led by Sheriff Henry Plummer, and his name is Erastus Red Yeager.
1: Oh my god, did they find a brown person? No,
0: he had red hair. He's oh, Irish.
1: Oh, okay.
0: Now, after they arrested him, they death. And they uh, no. Well, well that's not the yet. Only well, punishment. wait, they're going to get there first. He was trying to get out of it. Uh-huh. And so he gave them A full confession. Cool. With a full list of everyone that was in Henry Plummer's gang.
1: Saw them dancing with the devil in the pale moonlight.
0: Jaeger was, according to his captors, extremely forthcoming with information. Not only did he reveal names, but also that the gang members identified one another with a password. I am innocent.
1: Oh no.
0: Despite his cooperation, the vigilante hung him and his companion from a cottonwood tree. They pinned... Hand-drawn signs on the back of each dangling corpse. One read, Red Road Agent and Messenger. And the other, Brown Corresponding Secretary.
1: Corresponding Secretary was his crime? I guess so. It's not cool.
0: So they became known as the Innocents.
1: The gang did.
0: The gang were the Innocents because of their password.
1: You know, it reminds me of that game like 5th grade boys play where it's like, loser says what?
0: Yeah, a says what? What? Uh, it's
1: like if they start protesting and saying, I'm innocent, I'm innocent, they've just outed themselves. Exactly.
0: It's terrible.
1: It's Like, this is a total Western movie plot device.
0: So, in the first six weeks of 1864, at least 20 road agents of the infamous Plumber Gang were killed. How many? 20.
1: Good Got.
0: And so this wasn't helped because on January 6th, they captured Dutch John Wagner... And he supposedly corroborated the entire list and story from Red.
1: And was he executed too?
0: Of course. Okay.
1: Basically, you can just assume anyone that is picked up is executed.
0: Oh, yeah. Okay. So the gang were systematically gathered up, strung up on that beam of the unfinished building in Virginia City, and then buried on Boot Hill.
1: Oh, my God, Boot Hill. We could do a whole episode on Boot Hill.
0: <laughs> now. Our author Thomas Dinsdale said that after more than a dozen hangings you could leave a pan of gold dust on the sidewalk and no one would touch it.
1: Not even the wind.
0: (laughs) So of course with all of this the sheriff Henry Plummer was hanged as well. Now, right wrote, were it not for the sterling stuff of which the mass of miners is made, their love of fair play, and their prompt and decisive action in emergencies, this history could never have been written, for desperados of every nation would have made this country a scene of bloodshed and a sink of inequity, such as was never before witnessed.
1: Okay, so maybe there's a point. Like, you do need law and order and you need consent of the governed to govern and to enforce laws and if you're suspicious of the sheriff, his authority's been undermined. I see I see the argument, like, thank God someone was there, but come on, these guys are so overzealous. Like, it seems like they would execute Dog because he said he was innocent. I don't know, like, it seems like they would execute anyone. It doesn't seem like they were exactly discerning. So... Was there a giant conspiracy? Like, was the sheriff in on it? Was, like, were they just doing a little creative writing project with human lives? Like, what was going on?
0: So, there definitely were some outlaws. Like, George sure. Ives is spotted several times. In almost all the actual incidents that occur, George Ives is named.
1: So, he probably needed to be not executed, but...
0: Uh, maybe, but, you know, he needed like, some justice. Yeah. yeah. He needed to be rounded up. Off the
1: streets. Right. And there
0: probably were a few other kind of rough and tumble guys that got kind of caught up in things. But the sheriff was the sheriff, the great conspirator. Right. You know, the leader of this gang, allowing this all to happen. And that's a great question. For over a hundred years, he has been seen as a black hat.
1: Interesting.
0: But in more recent research and study, maybe it's more of a gray hat.
1: (laughs) So, like, maybe he let some people get away with some things and didn't come down on him as hard as he should have, but not ordering robberies and stagecoaches and murders and things.
0: Yeah, so there were only actually three profitable robberies in the area. Okay. And a lot of the people that went missing probably just left town.
1: Fair. Or died in the forest or whatever. Yeah, or
0: eaten by a bear, fell off a cliff, whatever. Fell into the river. I mean, I know but- how
1: many of my people have died on Oregon Trail.
0: A lot. But as Matthew and Boswell observed, the 21 victims of the vigilantes all had several interesting commonalities. More than three-fourths had arrived in the area from the other side of the mountain. Oh, well. Had personal enemies among the vigilante leaders and had never been known to take a human life. Of the nine who took an interest in politics, all were Democrats.
1: Oh my God.
0: And at the time of their capture, nearly half were either sick, wounded, or crippled.
1: Seriously? That seems unethical. <laughs> I mean, a lot of this seems unethical, but that seems like cowardly, I guess.
0: But they're just taking advantage, I guess. But there are stories from California, Oregon, Washington, Colorado, Nevada, and Idaho of these similar road agent gangs that were taking over the town that had town officials in their pockets. But many of these are just stories that they all have a lot of similarities. Now, as for Sheriff Plummer, I guess he's probably not the nicest of guys. Okay. Maybe he should be, like, the sheriff in a Coen Brothers movie. Okay. (laughs) Or a Tarantino movie. Originally, he was a businessman who eventually became deputy and then city marshal of Nevada City. Most likely secondary to his friendliness with the Bordello and saloon owners. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, while he was city marshal, he was involved in a saloon gunfight and, quote, allowed a sweeping fire to destroy a large part of the mining community.
1: So they just thought he was doing a shitty job.
0: So he was doing a shitty job. One writer suggested that the saloon fight and the fire had the effect of widening the rift that already existed between Marshall Plummer and then Sheriff Wright They had very big political differences. Plummer was a Democrat, and the sheriff, Wright, was a know-nothing party. Oh. The know-nothings were set to badmouth him and provide as much libel as possible in the pursuit of this escaped convict that he was after. They even said he ran like a coward at the sound of the first shot.
1: So they made up a story about him, and that... Episode that tracking that escape, content. yes,
0: yeah, so, cowardly. I,
1: so they're coloring public perception by putting out fake news.
0: Yeah, cool. So in the following months, Plummer actually made so many arrests of wanted men that even the Know Nothing Journal praised his quote considerable ingenuity. And he was reelected to the position of marshal in May of eighteen fifty-seven.
1: So then he was good at his job.
0: Yeah, he like turned people's opinion. He even got nominated. To go for the California Assembly for the Democrats. But huh. he lost.
1: So we all know that politically the scariest thing is someone of the opposite party who's very good at their job.
0: And he missteps. On September 26 of 1857, he shoots and kills John Vetter in Nevada City. Plummer had been providing protection of his wife, who was seeking to escape from her abusive husband. Now, of course, there were lots of stories that they were having an affair, too. Oh, well. Wow. Plummer claimed that he was acting in self-defense, but he was convicted of second-degree murder and sent to San Quentin.
1: Because he was with the guy's wife, providing protection to her, and then he ended up shooting this guy? Yeah. Like, her husband.
0: Yeah, when he came for her.
1: Okay shocked that violence against women was taken seriously for five seconds. Right? So yeah, they were probably having an affair.
0: So the courts are petitioned by the doctors that say he has consumption, and the people of Nevada City wrote in saying that he was a good guy, mm-hmm. that he would helped, and that it was in self-defense, and that anybody could see that John Vetter shot first.
1: <laughs> like Han.
0: Right? So he was granted a pardon, and only served six months of his ten-year sentence.
1: So the people are on his side. Yeah. Well, I don't know nothing about nothing, but I know we gotta do something about that.
0: Now He returns to the area, and he gets in another scuffle that helped tarnish his reputation. He was at Irish Maggie's.
1: Fun. A bordello. What a great name for a bordello.
0: Now, supposedly, Plummer had been closeted with a woman mm. when W.J. Muldoon pounded on the door and demanded admittance. Muldoon, upon hearing that the woman was with Plummer, became angry and began to berate him. Plummer opened the door, and in the conflict, he cracked Muldoon over the head with the butt of his pistol. He left town. He didn't want to be arrested again. And Muldoon died a few weeks later.
1: But, I mean, he used a little bit more restraint. This time he didn't shoot him. Right? Right? Right?
0: So, Civil War breaks out, Mm -hmm. and he's actually a Northern sympathizer. Okay. So, he gets in some other scuffles with some Southern sympathizers, Mm -hmm. and at one point, he even kills one Southern sympathizer, William Riley, in a fight. Plummer was taken into custody and put in jail, but he escaped.
1: So, he's very trigger-happy. With the
0: help of a prostitute. (laughs)
1: Who had a heart of gold. heart of
0: gold, I'm I'm sure. sure. Yeah.
1: For the purposes of this story, she definitely did.
0: So he starts to get mixed up with some bad characters. And he even starts to run with a man named Jack Cleveland, who is that escaped convict he tried to track down whenever he was city marshal.
1: Oh, the irony. This would make such a great miniseries.
0: It would. So the first murder on record in Bannock was in January of 1863. When George Evans left in search of some cattle, again, and he didn't... A different guy, though. He did not return within two days, mm-hmm. and a search party went out for him, and they discovered a bloody bundle of clothes stuffed into a badger hole upstream.
1: <laughs> a badger
0: hole? You heard me. Suspicion immediately fell on Cleveland. Sheriff Plummer's right, outlaw right. friend. Right. So the evidence was nothing more than circumstantial. He'd been seen kind of riding in that area on the day of the event. It definitely damaged his reputation. Now, a few days later, Henry Plummer was at the Goodrich Hotel, which was an upstanding establishment. Oh, sure. And Cleveland walks in drunk
1: and wanted for murder.
0: And he begins berating a local man named Jeff Perkins, claiming that Perkins had not paid a debt owed to him. And Plummer gets up, and he comes to Perkins' defense. So the man leaves the hotel. And soon, Cleveland starts up again, swearing and cussing and showing his sidearm and boasting that he was not afraid of any man. So Henry Plummer's had enough of this. He stands up, draws his pistol, and says, You son of a bitch. I'm tired of this, and fires one shot in the ceiling beam above Cleveland's head and lodged a second into Cleveland's abdomen. What was the point of the warning shot? (laughs) To be badass, he falls to the floor and starts pleading up at Plummer. You wouldn't shoot me when I'm down, will you? He says, no, get up. (laughs) Cleveland tries to stand up, and as he's struggling to regain his footing, Plummer fires twice more, shooting Cleveland in the head and chest now this really gets crazy because a local blacksmith shows up after Plummer has already left and takes cleveland in trying to help him with his wounds now what happens next is a matter of dispute by the blacksmith's own account he said that Plummer was in a highly agitated state demanding to know whether cleveland had said anything about him on his deathbed and threatening to go and finish the job of killing him if he had the blacksmith was scared that Plummer was going to kill him because he knew too much. So, he has a plan.
1: The blacksmith does? Oh yeah. Okay.
0: From a semi hot hidden location in a restaurant doorway the blacksmith leveled his rifle at Plummer's back and fires.
1: No. The ball
0: entered Plummer's right arm at the elbow shattering both his radius and ulna. Ah! Plummer spun on his heel and shouted at Crawford daring him to finish the job. He took a second shot and missed whoops then he left town fair on March 3rd of 1863 Congress officially created the Idaho Territory and Bannock decided to hold elections and guess who was elected as sheriff
1: our friend Plummer
0: Sheriff Plummer
1: not big on the background checks
0: now all these Republican businessmen in town did not like him being elected other than the testimony of witnesses and a bad reputation it's very unlikely he was a mastermind of a road gang although he have been permissive. I mean, the vigilantes never encountered any organized opposition and almost seemed to have projected a mirror image on their own organization onto a supposed enemy.
1: Right, they're like, well, we've managed to organize ourselves, so surely they have too. I bet it's an equal number.
0: So, on the night of January 10th, 1864, a crowd of 50 to 75 men surrounded Sheriff Plummer's cabin. Once outside, the mob bound his hands and forcibly escorted him across the bridge and towards the gallows they had built only three months prior. With his final breath, he asked them for a good drop. Now, Dinsdale said the Vigilance Committee's cause was to render impartial justice to friend and foe without regard to creed, race, or politics. Mm-hmm. what do you think about that mm-hmm. and that they looked forward to the day when it could disassemble their organization and see it replaced by an established system of justice I'm
1: sure they did so
0: that happened during the summer of 1864 Hezekiah L. Hosmer
1: then that's a name <laughs> I can't read anything set in the Old West because I just get so distracted by how fabulous all the names
0: are. He was named Chief Justice of the Montana Territory and established courts and law and order in the area.
1: So did they go quietly and disband and not vigilante anymore? Yeah. Oh my God, I'm shocked. I guess they killed everybody that needed killing.
0: (laughs) Right? Everyone they thought needed it. So it's hard to say if they were political enemies, if they were just people on the outside of... Society that they could put all of their fears and concerns on. But no matter what it was, 21 people were killed. And now it is the innocents.
1: Ah, oh, the death of innocence.
0: Now there is an urban legend that goes with this. Shocking. If you look on the Montana Highway Patrol's badge, they have a number.
1: Okay. Well, yeah, they have a badge number. No, no,
0: no. no, no
1: Another no. number.
0: It says 3777. Okay. It was added to the patch in 1956, and this number, according to the chief administrator, Alex Stevenson, who put it on there, said, We chose the symbol to keep alive the memory of this first people's police force. This number, this mysterious number, has been associated with this Montana Vigilante Committee. For over a hundred years. And no one knows what it means.
1: What are some theories? Do we have any theories? Oh yeah,
0: there's a million. Some people say it's the like square footage of the grave they would put you in. <laughs> or that they were giving you that amount of time to get out of town. Or that it was the time that the stagecoach left town. Or that it was secret numbers that the Vigilance Committee members went by.
1: Oh yeah, I can see that. That's the only one that sounds borderline plausible to me because the other, like, the fact that it's 77 makes me think it's not time.
0: Right. That's like, 77 seconds or 77 minutes is weird.
1: Right. But, like, where is it even from in record? Like, how did that get associated with them? Like, I understand we don't know what it means, but where does it come from?
0: So, no one knows exactly, but it is written down. First time in newspapers in November of 1879.
1: Okay. Just that this group had a mysterious number.
0: So this is 15 years after. There was the second wave of vigilantism following the murder of a liquor salesman and the trial of his killer. In the Helena Herald newspaper, the editor wrote, There's no distinguishing the fact that Helena at this time is the rendezvous of a score or more of very hard characters, men that have no visible means of a livelihood and that are watching for opportunities to rob and even murder, if necessary, to carry out their infamous purposes. Would it not be a wise, precautionary step to invite some of these desperate characters to take a walk? Or shall we wait for other murders and robberies, Or perhaps until they burn the town again. And so two days before, they had started seeing paintings on the walls and fences all over town. Of 3, 7, 77.
1: So nothing happened on March 7th of 1877?
0: (laughs) No, not that we know of. Not that we know of. Some people think it's like the Masonic Order.
1: (laughs) I don't think it's that. I think it's a date. I think knowing that this happened two years later, that there was a big write-up about it. Right? Right. And, like, people are saying, like, are we going to let this happen again? Whatever happened on 3777? Who knows? Well, I can go look in the newspapers and find out, you, right?
0: You, the people have tried.
1: Well, people aren't me. I solved mysteries for a living. <laughs> it's what I do. Not mysteries that matter.
0: <laughs> no, these kind of mysteries, important ones.
1: About dead folks who live in other states that I've never met. Yeah,
0: cool. So, the idea of these posses, of people trying to provide law and honor to the Wild West, seems like such a story now. Right. And it's the, it's the part of Clint Eastwood movies.
1: Spaghetti Westerns. Exactly.
0: You want to think that these were left way back in the 1800s right once
1: we civilized that wild wild country right we started behaving
0: they were waiting to be disbanded they right. were waiting they were just, for it they wanted it
1: just hoping someone would come and give them a court date to hang their hats on but then to ignore the 20th century altogether would be would be wrong of us because that was the century of the greatest war the war to end all of the wars, and you can't end all of the wars without going a little crazy, right? Without getting a little wild at home. And the boys are fighting over yonder in in Europe and, you know, the rest of us left here. What are we to do?
0: Protect the home front.
1: We've got to protect the home front. We've got to make sure that we're vigilant. So on July 26, 1918, President Wilson condemned mob rule Almost four months had passed since Robert Prager, a German-American, coal miner, had been lynched. Wilson was angered that the enemy German press had used the killing of Prager in its wartime propaganda. We're giving fodder to the enemy. Basically a problem. Good reason not to do it. Right? And he felt the increasing pressure from civil libertarians at home. In a widely reprinted proclamation, Wilson insisted on the rule of law. He claimed that no man who loves America, no man who really cares for her fame and honor and character can justify mob action while the courts of justice are open and the government of the states and the nation are ready and able to do their duty. The mob spirit, Wilson, was not a fan of. It was irreconcilable with American democracy. But no! But mobs! It's what we do, No, that is
0: what we do. It was a mob that broke into a British ship and tossed tea.
1: But we're civilized now. That's we have right, the luxury of civility.
0: We're civilized people.
1: <laughs> so we'll be relying heavily on a paper called The Only Badge You Need Is Your Patriotic Fervor, Vigilance in the Law in World War One America by Christopher Capozolo.
0: So Wilson, our great president, yeah. was, this was such a big problem that he felt like he needed to stand on, on his pulpit and say, this is Un-American. Bad. Un-American. Un-American. What's worse than that?
1: Nothing. Sedition, but nothing.
0: <laughs> That's un-America.
1: <laughs> so basically, Christopher says that vigilanteism is as American as apple pie. And you know what? He's got a point. And so Robert Prager was lynched by an angry mob on the outskirts of Collinsville, Illinois. He was a German-American that they suspected of being a German spy. And so they dropped his body three times from this this tree on the edge of Collinsville
0: one for the red one for the white one for the blue that's
1: that's what they said when God. they did that <laughs> Yeah, that's true. That happened. So World War I marked a really big shift for people because it was like they were trying to put America in the context of the globe. And there was a distrust of authority, but at the same time this fierce loyalty to it. And so it created a lot of tensions and a lot of independent actors that sort of confounded the established order.
0: Right, because at this time... There was not a lot of support for the police force.
1: Well, the police force was a relatively new phenomenon. We kind of talked about that in our Helltown episode. Definitely. So what Wilson and those who shared his outlook meant was there was something more specific. It's not just extrajudicial action that they had a problem with. It was the mob, the mob, the foaming at the mouth
0: what it could lead to rabid
1: mob right that's scary and there was this major attempt to separate the idea of vigilance because if you look at propaganda from world war one they want you to be vigilant. be vigilant be vigilant they wanted to separate vigilance from vigilantes
0: that's hard it's only a few it's letters. hard to
1: do right it compounds in the mind the elite power structures viewed uncontrolled physical violence as politically illegitimate as they subverted the system of law. But the vigilance committees were not seen as being part of that group. One must understand that the voluntary support for law enforcement was commonplace, and this led public figures to draw on long-standing traditions that said if you're a good citizen you will volunteer to assist law enforcement you have a civic responsibility to uphold the law and assist this fledgling law enforcement thing we're trying out
0: this is where we get the vigilance movement
1: Right, and this is a not-too-distant cousin of the posse, which was the means for enforcing the law before we had police. Right, But there are several different iterations of vigilance committees. They take all different shapes and sizes and forms. There are, here too, women's vigilance committees,
0: Talked about some of those.
1: Mm-hmm. Home guards and just your general garden variety vigilance committees. Americans regularly engaged in extra-legal or extrajudicial action in order to support the war effort. They were being good Americans, right? It's very important.
0: It says it on the posters.
1: But there became a palpable and sudden interest in public discourse in separating the illegitimate mob or the illegitimate vigilante from... The legitimate vigilance committee or the legitimate citizens who were doing the government's work or doing the work of the American spirit we couldn't dismiss it outright this idea that we needed to stand up for ourselves because self defense and the right to self-defense is integral to the concept of self-rule
0: right so what were some of the ways that they were vigilant well, without being vigilantes,
1: <laughs> historian Maxwell Brown documented 5,400 deaths linked to vigilante groups in the United States between 1767 and 1951. So some of them. We're being vigilantes, without a doubt.
0: Right, but where's some of the other ones? I mean, we've talked about that. There's this long-standing tradition, (laughs) whether it's being good or bad or whatever.
1: We can kind of put them into different sectors. So you have this kind of like voluntary law enforcement that is a feature where citizens can stop people from doing bad things. And that can include everything from citizens' arrest, which is not used so much anymore. Anyone who heard the, quote, Hue and cry of a distressed person was obliged to come to their defense and militias were formed out of able-bodied men within communities should they be needed for anything and posses were legally summoned by sheriffs to help track down criminals and whatnot. So on. There's also, like, the racial vigilantes.
0: Of course. I mean, you have the obvious KKK. Right.
1: Again, very Vimic order.
0: Yes. But there were also vigilance committees, and that's what they were called, that were very important in the Underground Railroad in the northern
1: states. That's definitely the other side of the coin there.
0: There are two sides of that coin for sure. That's a whole episode.
1: (laughs) And then there were those tasked with being vigilant about labor, So in 1917, labor relations were dominated by private and community methods for maintenance of order. Corporations regularly employed private policing forces such as the Pinkertons to break up and infiltrate unions. So they were trying very much to keep power in the hands of top dog corporate people. Shocking.
0: And later they just hired Jimmy Hoffa.
1: (laughs) Isn't the story that he's like buried in the end zone? He is. Okay.
0: Definitely. For sure. Yeah. End zone in the football stadium.
1: So all of this is percolating. This is all like a way that this is expressed in the lead up to the Great War. And then it kind of fuses itself into a fervor. Citizens were called on by the government and leading officials to stand vigilant. A poster in New York City's Conference Committee on National Preparedness urged defense against spies and traitors. Quote, Men of America, be of clear vision. Promptly deliver up these advanced agents to public scorn and to the law, so that when you go home at night, you can look into the innocent eyes of your children and be unafraid.
0: Wow, pulling all the punches.
1: Uh-huh. A New Hampshire poster urged, quote, Promptness in recognizing and reporting disloyal actions to your local authorities. And Woodrow Wilson even said in 1917, vicious spies and conspirators are among us and they were here to spread sedition amongst us and they sought by violence to destroy our industries and arrest our commerce woe be to the man or to the group that seeks to stand in our way and then in the albany journal we were given explicit instructions in an editorial If you ever, on the street or in a trolley car, should hear some soft-shell pacifist or hard-boiled but poorly camouflaged pro-German make seditious or unpatriotic remarks about your Uncle Sam, you have the right and the privilege of taking that person by the collar and handing him over to the nearest policeman, or else take him yourself before the magistrate. Now, there were some vigilance committees that had very... Top notch names such as the Sedition Slammers nice. or the Terrible Threateners of the Boy Spies of America. Yes. Girl spies, they don't threaten, just boy spies. The largest group at the time was the American Protective League, which had 250,000 members. Now, the women were being vigilant about morality here too. They were encouraged to report anyone who outrages public decency. Oh, no. Hundreds and thousands of men and women responded to calls for national defense on the home front by forming voluntary vigilance associations. Not a single German spy was uncovered
0: during World War I. I was going to ask. Nope.
1: (laughs) But they, you know, looked for them.
0: They found some people and hanged them.
1: Volunteers in New Haven, Connecticut, kept round-the-clock watch at an anti-aircraft device they had installed to protect Mm -mm. their city against an unlikely Aerial invasion from Germany. Amazing. I hope it's still there. It just tickles me. In Portland, Maine, a suitcase was seized and, and that had been abandoned.
0: Oh no. In
1: downtown Longfellow Square.
0: Must have been a bomb.
1: Gingerly, they brought the bag to police headquarters where it was carefully examined and was found to contain a quantity of men's soiled
0: underwear. No. <laughs> of course it was. Which is a good reason to discard a suitcase. Sometimes it's not worth washing. <laughs>
1: right. But you have to realize that the citizens who made up these committees did not think that the Constitution was meaningless. On the contrary, they were concerned about protecting American democracy. Yeah, they thought
0: they were protecting it. They,
1: as they understood it to be. As, yes, their understanding of America was their motivating force. Cool. Members of the Citizens Protective League in Covington, Kentucky stockpiled arms while other townspeople volunteered as public speakers and people in New Jersey formed espionage committees and women's gun club and they also knitted socks and scarves oh. for the boys overseas in Bayonne, New Jersey. 19 women formed the Women's Revolver League using borrowed weapons and an instructor borrowed from local police station. They trained at the police practice ranges in the Baywater Yacht Club.
0: Well, look at that. <laughs> I wonder if they knitted, too.
1: So, one of the groups that, that had a hard time dealing with this particular brand of patriotism were the Mennonites.
0: Are they German? That's not good for them.
1: Right. So, liberty bonds are being
0: sold. Right, to help fund the war.
1: Essentially, they were loaning the U.S. government money and would be paid back with a 4% interest rate. And this practice raised eighteen point five billion dollars it's a very successful program yes
0: my great aunt bought remy a bond yeah <laughs> i was like what do i do with this i don't know where it is
1: i found it in our folder of important documents the other day i was like auntie you crazy it's
0: worth like 50 bucks
1: <laughs> 54 now or something so the entire loan drive was organized down to such a grassroots level it was virtually impossible for anyone's noncompliance to go unnoticed. Nearly every newspaper in America during this time included headlines such as, Are you with or against the Hun? Oh no. Buy a liberty bond if you would show the world where you stand. And there can be no such things as neutrality on the part of the true American citizen in this great war. Buy liberty bonds or see the U.S. lose. Most Americans were easily persuaded to buy bonds, but there were a few select groups that did not. There was an Anabaptist sect called the Mennonites, and they were one such group. They were specifically forbidden, because of their religious tenets, to engage in war or any activity that would result in taking of human life. The Mennonites had come to America in the 1700s and 1800s from Holland, Germany, and Russia to escape compulsory military conscription and find an environment where they would not be punished for their nonviolent beliefs so they came to america where they settled mainly in the midwest and they acclimated very well to us life but they would not take up arms against germany during world war 1
0: so they were not going to voluntarily buy liberty bonds which They didn't have to do.
1: Right, and so taxes were increased at this time, and they paid the increased taxes, even knowing that it was going to funding the war, because it was expected of them. It was an actual obligation. I mean, you're
0: going to get thrown in jail, get your property seized. Right,
1: but they paid that. They didn't grumble about it too much, but they were just not going down to voluntarily buy liberty bonds, because that's against their religion, right?
0: I'm sure everybody else loved that, and didn't help many of them were of German descent.
1: So, like other places in the country, several counties in Kansas printed the names of people who purchased Liberty Bonds. Okay. And the names of people who failed
0: to purchase
1: Liberty Bonds.
0: Damn. Called out. Mm -hmm. That's femic. I think that's what that means.
1: They tried so hard to walk this line. Like, they paid the taxes, even though the taxes were funding the war. They registered for the draft as conscientious objectors. Oh, right, right. and But they didn't register to go fight. They signed up so they couldn't be accused of draft dodging. Right, of
0: course. Or go clean some toilets or whatever.
1: Or participate in horrible experiments. They
0: did that. We need to do that one
1: yeah. <laughs> They tried to comply with the law as much as they could within the framework of their faith. Now, misguided patriots at the local level saw the Mennonites as those who did not dress and behave as they did who frequently had German names and, even worse, often spoke with a German accent, who would not support the brave boys of the front by participating in war bond drives, and who would not display the American flag, and who would not send their sons to fight in the Great War.
0: Krauts. Yes.
1: So, they began organizing vigilance committees to encourage these slackers...
0: Is that what they called uh them? Uh-huh. No. ...to
1: change their mind. People who said seditious things in public were subject to all manner of indignities. For example, John Knoll, who was an honor student at the Normal School, was assaulted and expelled from school for telling a fellow student, you have to pretend you were for the war in order to get by. An ad placed in Barton County asked for night Riders to volunteer.
0: That term sounds familiar.
1: Yep. Uh, They wanted to rid the county of German spies, German sympathizers, and dirty slackers. Vigilantes visited Mennonite Farms who did not contribute to the Red Cross or buy bonds and confiscated their cattle to sell for the war. No. Mennonite churches that refused to display the American flag had their doors and walls painted yellow
0: because oh, they
1: were yellow. Yeller. <laughs> In 1918, Bernard Harder The pastor of Emmaus Mennonite Church in Butler County, Kansas, and his family were threatened by a mob. Even though he had counseled his congregation to buy bonds and had agreed to display the American flag on his front porch, the mob was finally dispersed when Harder, from his front porch, proposed that they all join in singing America. As Harder sang the four full verses of the song, the voices of the 100% Americans trailed off. After the first verse, and gradually they drifted away, out-americaned by a Mennonite.
0: Nice. Smart thinking.
1: Right? One family, the Coop Riders, were prominent citizens in the Mennonite community, and they lived in McPherson County in Kansas. Originally, the Coop Rider family was German, but they'd been in America since the colonial days. And early in his life, Matthias had not been a Mennonite. He actually fought for Indiana during the Civil War. However, after being widowed twice with three young sons, he met Susan Heatwell- Bronk, who was a widow. Her late spouse was a prominent Mennonite minister, and they married in 1878 and had three children together, in addition, his previous three and her previous four. So they've got a whole Brady bunch. So Mennonite
0: Brady baptism. Yes. Got
1: it. So Matthias became a Mennonite and was ordained as a minister of the faith in 1885, and all the children were baptized into the Mennonite church. His son, Walter, and her daughter, Minnie, actually grew up and got married.
0: Weird, but okay. Interesting.
1: I mean, just think of the tension between Greg and Marsha, right?
0: No, gross.
1: It is gross. It's gross. But it's also Kansas and, like, no one around for miles.
0: It's the same damn thing about where we live.
1: I met in the 1880s. Come on. And so they continued to live on the property with Matthias and Susan, and they helped run the farm. Everything was going okay until 1917 when the Conscription Act passed and two of Walter's son, George and Henry, were required to register for the draft board. Meanwhile, papers in the area were publishing lists of slackers and, of course, the Coop Rider family appeared on the list. So Walter Coop Rider was feeling ill on April 22, 1918, and he went and sat down by his father, who at this time was 82 years old, on their front porch. And suddenly, they hear cars in their driveway.
0: Uh-oh. Someone read the paper
1: hmm so they see headlights and about 40 vehicles pulling into their front yard oh, shit. dark figures some of whom were wearing masks climbed out of the vehicles the vigilantes surrounded the house and called for the slacker walter Cooper to come out they demanded that he buy war bonds or they told him we are going to tar and feather you oh shit the family inside the house was obviously very afraid but because of their faith they were forbidden to use violence
0: Oh, no. Even to
1: defend themselves. So Walter rose to go out and meet these men in his front yard. And you'll remember he was older, sick. And they later remarked that even though these people were wearing masks, they could tell who they were and they were all people they knew. Small community. So Walter explained to the mob that his religious beliefs forbade him to buy war bonds or display a flag or anything else that fostered war. The mob surged forward. But before they could lay hands on Walter... 24-year-old George, his son, stepped out from the house and explained to the mob that his father had not been well and offered himself instead. The men seized George and painted his head, neck, and shoulders with warm roofing tar.
0: Oh, God.
1: Then forced him to lie down on a sheet covered with feathers and roll on it. Then, as quickly as they arrived, they left. The mob regrouped and drove 23 miles to the eastern edge of McPherson County where, at about 2 a.m., they smeared tar on the threshold of the Spring Valley Mennonite Church and tarred and feathered the pastor, D.A. Diner, and his son, Charles. Two days after the mob tarred and feathered his son, Walter Cooprider went to McPherson and invested in some Liberty Bonds. Five months later, on September 5th of 1918, his second son, Henry, was drafted. America But probably the most infamous example of the way that this vigilante spirit, this patriotic fervor, was integrated into the pre-existing frameworks that existed at the time happened in Bisbee, Arizona. What happened there? The Great Deportation. Oh, what? Yes. So Bisbee was a small copper mining town on the Mexican border, and in the summer of 1917, they're having a bit of a political crisis. The sitting Democratic governor, GWP Bell, refused to turn over his office to his Republican challenger, Thomas E. Campbell. And because this was going on, there was a power vacuum in the political sphere.
0: Oh, that just leaves it open for vigilantism.
1: Right, right. So, much of the town's governing was taken over by corporate interests who had stake in the mines.
0: A copper mine.
1: A copper mine. Now, copper was deemed very essential. For, for the war effort. Right, because every bullet that was used on the front required almost a quarter ounce of copper. Oh, wow. The price inflated, but workers were feeling overworked and unfairly compensated. And because copper was needed for the war effort, they thought maybe it would be a good time to ask for a raise.
0: Oh, they were wrong, I assume.
1: Well, they were going to unionize and then ask.
0: Oh, that's not good either.
1: And they did choose a fairly radical union, Metal Mine Workers Industrial Union, and it was affiliated with the IWW. We'll talk about them later. And on June 27th of 1917, a strike began at the Copper Queen Mine, and about half of the 4,500 workers walked off their job. It went on for weeks, and production of copper for the war slowed to a crawl. And so Bisbee residents formed two groups to oppose the strike. There was the Citizens Protective League, which was mainly comprised of business leaders and middle-class locals, and the Workmen's Loyalty League, which was composed of non-striking minors. On July 12th, 2,000 or more members of the group, as well as hundreds of privately hired detectives and the presidents of the Phelps felt- Dodge Corporation, who just happened to be in Bisbee, were deputized by Sheriff Harry E. Wheeler, who was a former Rough Rider. Yay! Wheeler told the men that the federal government had authorized them to deport the strikers.
0: I have a feeling that's not true.
1: It was not true! So he gave all the new deputies white armbands and sent them out to go work rounding up anyone who was on strike on charges of vagrancy, treason, and of being disturbers of the peace, all those strange men who have congregated here. The deportation was kind of a political circus, and it detained men, women, children, regardless of their opinions on the war, their actions during the strike. It was just kind of like, meh, I don't like you. You gone. You done.
0: Sounds familiar.
1: By midday, approximately 1,200 townspeople were held under armed guard at the baseball park in the neighboring town. And by late afternoon, they were marched at gunpoint onto trains provided by the El Paso and Southwestern Railroad and deported to New Mexico, where they were dumped in the desert town of Hermanus. For four months, the Citizens Protective League and the Chamber of Commerce in the nearby town of Douglas held total control of
0: Bisbee. What?
1: And they issued official passports.
0: For a town. Yes. What would you do with a passport? Well, you for had a town? to have
1: one to be a, to prove that you're a resident. Really? And you would only receive this passport if you passed an oral examination about your opinion on the war and the strike.
0: Oh my God! And
1: no one could leave Bisbee without their passport, nor could they get work or a draft exemption.
0: This is the most un-American thing, right? <laughs> you could do.
1: Men and women who failed the league's loyalty test were excluded from the city, deported, or imprisoned and sent to work at the copper mines in convict labor gangs. The Citizens Protective League claimed that its work was vital to the war. Its spokesmen argued that they had taken the law into their own hands to defend the law, not to violate it. In a telegram to the president, Governor-elect Campbell noted that the citizens in many mining communities affected, feeling that peace officers cannot afford adequate protection, are acting in the meantime and praying for federal intervention. Campbell, Wheeler, and all the corporations insisted that it was the IWW strikers who were lawless.
0: Definitely.
1: As Wheeler told the state attorney general, If we are guilty of taking law into our own hands, I can only cite you the universal law that necessity makes. I would repeat the operation at any time I find my own people endangered by a mob composed of 80% aliens and enemies of my government. So the leaders of the raid sought to claim the mantle of lawful vigilance and distance themselves from lawless vigilantism.
0: So how do people respond to this? I mean, this sounds like this is so un-American. This is against so many things that we supposedly stand for.
1: Well, the L.A. Times wrote the citizens of Cochise County, Arizona, have written a lesson that the whole of America would do well to copy. No! That's L.A. No! L.A. And then former President Theodore Roosevelt insisted that no human being in his senses doubts that the men deported from Bisbee were bent on destruction and murder. Teddy! 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 There were some critics, such as Samuel Gompers, the president of the American Federation of Labor, I assume it is not necessary for me to give you any assurance of how utterly out of accord I am with the IWW and any such propaganda. But some of the men deported are said to be law-abiding men engaged in earnest effort for improvement of their condition. There is no law of which I am aware that gives authority to private citizens to undertake to deport from any state any man. If there be lawlessness, it is surely such conduct." President Wilson assured Governor-elect Campbell that the federal troops were on their way, but added, Meantime, may I not respectfully urge the great danger of citizens taking the law into their own hands, as you report their having done. I look upon such action with grave apprehension. A serious responsibility is assumed when such precedents are set. So the President's Mediation Commission went out, and was going to check into all of this and see what was what, an official report, etc. And they were headed by Felix Frankfurter. And he issued a report, which was highly critical of the deportations. The report also condemned the post deportation reign of law and order by the citizens protective league and the chamber of commerce as a cure for industrial strife. It urged greater cooperation between labor and management and thought that that probably needed to be facilitated by the federal government because the people on the ground here not handling it so well. Oh, you could say that again. But the PMC's greatest concern was that the League had undermined the effectiveness of other wartime loyalty organizations. Such agencies of the public, as the so-called Loyalty Leagues, only serve to intensify the bitterness, and more unfortunately, to the minds of workers in the West, serve to associate all loyalty movements with partisan and anti-union aims. The ongoing war allowed labor leaders and organizers and corporations to frame the debates about unionizing and fair wages and fair compensation, fair working conditions in terms of patriotism.
0: Right, they're able to take advantage of the situation. They really do. So So now this did not stop at the end of World War I.
1: No, people quite enjoyed having this power. And there were many post-war vigilance committees that either begged to have like their charters extended or, you know, just didn't disband. But the largest of the post-war vigilante organizations was the American Legion.
0: Oh, I've heard of them.
1: Right. So they were founded soon after the war as a veterans organization. And the Legion jumped wholeheartedly into the tumultuous conflicts of the post-war period. The Legionnaires frequently attempted to impose their vision of Americanism and social order through extra-legal means. Huh. When the Legionnaires and former members of the American Protective League broke up the city's May Day Parade, they tore red flags from the hands of socialist veterans who dared to march in their own uniforms. So later that year, on Armistice Day in Centralia, Washington, Legionnaires stormed the local IWW. That's
0: the Union. hmm That the miners were part of.
1: Right, and exchanged gunfire with men inside. Holy shit. They captured the local IWW, or Industrial Workers of the World, leader.
0: Did they tar and feather him?
1: Wesley Everest is his name, and they castrated him and killed him, dragged his body through the city, wrapped in an American flag. Wow. So the Omaha World Herald wrote in October of 1919, In the wake of the riots, we have learned how frail is the barrier which divides civilization from the primal.
0: So we keep seeing that happen. When things break down to the primal, when law and order is gone, when the government can no longer protect us, when society is breaking down, what are we to do?
1: Why, look to our fellow citizens for help. I guess. Take the law into our own hands. Take the
0: law into our own hands. Now, The best example of a truly lawless environment that has happened in the modern era is when Hurricane Katrina completely devastated New Orleans.
1: Right, and completely cut it off from everything around it. It made it an island. Other cities have been without power. Other cities have had their share of natural disasters. But there was something about that urban sprawl being cut off from the outside world. Except like by boat or by helicopter, really fostered this.
0: Right, and even the cause of it was due to the government. It was FEMA's complete lack of any preparedness, but also
1: <laughs> not the, to mention the Army Corps of Engineers, exactly the
0: levees. It was the government was no longer able to even protect us from this. So in the wake of Katrina, so many stories on urban legends came about. There were stories of looters going everywhere i literally just read this yesterday there was a urban legend going around that a looter broke into someone's home and it was an old lady and she had nothing and they felt so bad for her that they went next door and stole a color tv and brought it to her
1: i think that's true
0: but now while that's a funny urban legend most of them were scary and frightening
1: there was like one image that was used over and over and over again
0: Right, and there's no doubt that there were looters and there was crime, but what was the degree of it? So on in September of 2009, Christian Science Monitor published an article, post-Katrina vigilante violence, rumor or fact, the U.S. Attorney's Office and the FBI are looking into allegations of roaming people hunters targeting blacks in the floods and chaos of four years ago. Looters, rogue cops, rifle-toting vigilante militias, and homes protected by jerry-rigged alarm systems made of empty strung-together beer cans.
1: That one's probably true.
0: New Orleans in the immediate wake of Katrina was a surreal, dismal, and sometimes deadly place. It is a morally treacherous gambit to measure the actions of stressed people in the virtually lawless state of post-Katrina, New Orleans, by typical standards, says Peter Scharf, a criminologist at Tulane. The outcome, he worries, could impact the willingness of first responders to stay behind during a major natural emergency. Now, there have been several, you know, just offhand reports of people bragging about shooting and being vigilantes, but Loyola criminologist Dee Harper, for one, says they don't come off as very credible. Something's missing there. But with this complete collapse of a functioning civil society after Katrina, rumors became urban legends. Says former FBI agent Jim Bernazany, who was on the scene. He says, there's no presumption of guilt, but the FBI will follow the facts. And if the facts warrant further scrutiny within the legal system, we have processes in place. Because we are a nation of laws to achieve that end.
1: Speaking my language. Love it. (laughs) Processes.
0: So are like the beer cans. Of course, people were guarding against looters. It was night number nine. Of his vigil, he had turned his balcony into a makeshift watchtower. Five borrowed shotguns, a pistol, a flare gun, an old AK forty-seven, loads of ammunition, strategically placed next to the blankets and pillows, where our man Stubbs, Vinnie Prevell and Greg Harris had slept every night since Hurricane Katrina. Now Prevell's mother, seventy-four years old, was standing there, and she pulled her rosary from her pocket. There was a shotgun resting near her. She said, "Oh dear." What would Father John think?
1: (laughs) So the story is actually true. It sounds true. This
0: is true. Now Prevell said, I never thought I'd be going into my neighbor's house and taking their guns. We wrote down what gun came from what house so we could return them when they got back. He was worried that looters and others seeking higher ground might invade and come into his home and possibly hurt his mother.
1: I mean, it's a fair thought, especially if you know there's a gun next door that they could just go get and then come in after. you. Like, the idea of that gun being there for anybody to grab, it would make me very nervous.
0: So the first few nights after the hurricane, they said they'd heard gunfire popping all around and saw people walking with flashlights. So there was one time that actually forewarned him. I said, look, I know you're there. I'm going to count to three and I'm going to shoot. One, two. And I hear, don't shoot. And you hear footsteps just running off. He never had to fire a single shot. And he was happy about that. That was not something he wanted to do.
1: Sounds like legitimate self-defense.
0: Exactly. Guarding your home against looters, perfectly fine in my opinion. Perfectly fine. In
1: that environment. In that environment.
0: He wasn't firing at anybody. If he heard something, he warned them. Pretty legit, right? And he actually had been attacked on one of the first days after Katrina. He had his truck that was loaded down with supplies and... Two guys clubbed him on the head with a sledgehammer, grabbed his Holy key, shit. and stole it, along with his money and credit cards.
1: Yeah, I'd probably be doing the exact same thing were him.
0: So, of course, Katrina, this lawless environment, but it's not the only reason people were so afraid in New Orleans. New Orleans is one of the most violent cities in the country. The times In editorialized on August 12th, just a few days before Katrina. If you aren't fed up with the murder rate in New Orleans, you can only belong to one group, the people doing the killing.
1: Hmm, it sounds right.
0: The city's becoming scarier. New Orleans logged more murders than it had at this time last year, and people were not feeling safe.
1: So, even before Katrina, there were some severe tensions in the community, and there was a lot of public sentiment that Negan, who was the mayor at the time, was not doing a good job a lot of dissatisfaction with him. The police force was overwhelmed and inefficient. And that's still something they're dealing with, but they are tr- introducing some really interesting new measures. Yes. Yes, um, yes. But at this time it was, it was not keeping up.
0: It was bad. It was just getting worse and worse. So in the days after Katrina, flooded ruins of the city, there were tales of violence, Bloodshed, all of these stories built on anecdotes, stories told to reporters that they'd heard from a friend. They were hardening into this kind of ugly consensus. Poor blacks and looters were murdering innocents, terrorizing whoever crossed their path in the dark, unprotected city. Now, Russell Honore, who was the army lieutenant general at the time, kind of he was one of the heroes of Katrina, he said, as you look back on it, at the time it was being reported, It looked like the city was under siege. Now, New York Times reporter, David Carr, said in September, so about a month later, the media's willingness to report thinly attributed rumors may have contributed to a cultural wreckage that will not clean up easily. Victims, officials, and reporters all took one of the most horrific events in American history and made it worse than it actually was. Now, the times picayune reported a few days later, four weeks after the storm, few of the widely reported atrocities had been backed with evidence.
1: Do you think that happened just because it was so hard to get in
0: there? Well, they were just relying on people stopping them on the streets and asking. But it's even worse than that. They also had all of this really bad rhetoric from those in charge. Mayor Ray Nagin, who you mentioned, told Oprah that hundreds of gang members were marauding through the Superdome. Louisiana Governor Catherine Blanco...
1: Oh, my God, another winner. Said I forgot their, it was her. I know.
0: She was bringing in 300 Arkansas National Guard troops to help restore order, saying they have M-16s and they are locked and loaded. These Jesus troops Christ. know how to shoot and kill, and they are more than willing to do so if necessary. And I expect they will.
1: She was talking about the, the National Guard had M-16s? Yeah,
0: yeah, but they were coming in to stop all of this insane violence that was going on.
1: So, just pause for a second. This is totally her trying to look tough after she cried through, like, four press conferences. Possibly. At whose expense?
0: <laughs> and so, Nagin took even one step further. Whenever he heard the reports that a police officer had been shot in the head, he said that it was time to declare martial law.
1: I don't think... I- Mayor can do that.
0: Louisiana doesn't actually have Have martial law. law.
1: Because we're, yeah. Oh my God. Mitch Landrieu is like such an upgrade, right?
0: Right. So after all of this, there was a lot of conflicting reports, but it has been recorded on several occasions that from the top down, they were telling police officers to shoot looters. Hotly debated topic. We cannot go into (laughs) But there are video and audio recordings of them saying it. But who gave the order is what's...
1: Up for debate. Up for
0: debate. And then there's the terrible Danziger Bridge incident, which had police officers falsely claiming that they were being shot at on the Danziger Bridge by like, gang members. or you know, I mean, they were making it up, it turned out. And this led for a whole truckload of cops to come in, and six civilians were shot, two being killed. Now, they were charged and indicted, and... There was a big conspiracy about it. So with all of this, all of this is going on. This is the morass. You have civil disorder. You have people the, officials. corrupt officials. You have people at the top saying there shoot. are gang members. there. We are sending people in to shoot all the bad guys. There are all of these news reports about all these terrible incidents that are happening with vast majority of them turning out to be not true. But this is what you hear. This is the environment that you're in.
1: If you're hearing anything, you know, like you're getting bits and pieces when the signal comes in or when you have power for five minutes or when you can run the generator. Right. And so it's, you know, out of context. And like, you know, Louisiana politicians are corrupt. That's kind of their thing. (laughs) Like, I feel like we've kind of turned things around the last five years. But before, (laughs) my God. And Ray Nagin does not inspire a great deal of confidence in his performance. And then you had the levy break. That was something the government was responsible for. You were trapped. The government's responsible for getting you out. There's no plan. They didn't do contraflow early enough on the interstate. I mean, there are all these reasons to feel abandoned and desperate.
0: So this is the chaos. That brings us to Algiers Point. So for a little geography lesson... (laughs) Alger's Point is on the West Bank. It's on the other side of the Mississippi from where you will go if you go to New Orleans. It is still New Orleans. It did not flood. It is on the high ground. And this neighborhood is where people decided to take things into their own hands. Some sat on their porch or balcony just guarding their property, maybe creating makeshift alarms with cans and strings. But others took it much further. One of the residents, Betty, said There are several guys in the neighborhood. They had this little task force. They knew everyone who stayed and where we were, and if It hadn't been to all those guys making a statement to those looters. I don't know what would have happened. It was September 1st, three days after Katrina. Harrington, who was traveling through Algiers Point with two of his friends, was shot with a shotgun. I just hit the ground. I didn't even know what happened. His cousins, Marcel, then 17, and friend Chris, 18, all three black, were shot at as well, and just in the confusion, they didn't know what was going on. I so said I looked at Donnell and he had this big old hole in his neck. I tried to help him up and they started shooting again. Harrington staggered to his feet and was shot again from behind. Some of the buckshot also hit his friend and family. Harrington says he hadn't even seen the men or their weapons before the shooting began. They split up, ran in opposite directions. The gunman caught the two men that were only hit with some stray buckshot interrogated them for 15 minutes and let them go. Meanwhile, Harrington clawed his way to another house. I was bleeding pretty bad from my neck area. Now they wrapped him in a sheet and sped him to West Jeff, the local hospital. Now there they found at least seven pellets in his right neck and he was wheeled into the operating room for emergency surgery. Now the physician on call said it was a close-range buckshot wound from a shotgun. If he hadn't gotten to the hospital, he wouldn't have lived.
1: And if he had been anywhere else in New Orleans, he couldn't have got to the hospital.
0: Right. God
1: damn. It is amazing that they had staff there to deal with that.
0: Right. And so it's important to note, Alger's Point is not flooded. It is a dry area. It's this small enclave of a neighborhood on the West Bank. It's these beautiful old homes that have all been kept up. And it's a nationally recognized historic area. It is...
1: It is mainly white neighborhood. But surrounding it, Algiers, not Algiers Point, but Algiers, is a black neighborhood. Right. And it has been forever.
0: Yes, forever, ever. The road separating them is like a stark boundary. (laughs) So word spread that the area was dry. So people were heading towards that area. But importantly, as part of the rescue mission, Operation Dunkirk, By the U.S. Coast Guard, they created a makeshift evacuation center at the Algiers Ferry Terminal.
1: So that's on the point in the white neighborhood.
0: Right. So the only way to get to the evacuation center, which they were loading up buses and shipping them to where we live and to Texas and to everywhere, is to walk through this neighborhood. To walk through Algiers Point.
1: Okay, I'm not liking where this is going. So
0: on the day of the shooting, Harrington, Alexander, and Collins were all just trying to escape the city to set out to the U.S. Coast Guard government-designated evacuation point.
1: And some asshole decided they were looters.
0: Now, one of the homeowners described what he saw. Said He witnessed a barrage of gunfire from a shotgun, an AK-47, or handgun, directed by the militiamen at these African-American men standing on Pelican Street. The gunfire hit one of them. I saw blood squirting out of his back. I'm an EMT. My instinct should have been to rush to him. But I didn't. And if I had, those guys, the militiamen, they might have opened up on me too.
1: What the fuck are militiamen?
0: These guys. These guys that have decided to protect the neighborhood. The neighborhood that you have to walk through to get to the evacuation point.
1: This is really making me angry.
0: Now, Terry Benjamin, who lived in the area, said she saw a bourgeois, a 47-year-old white man, pledged to shoot anybody with skin darker than a brown paper bag while we clutching a bag. shotgun
1: tested them that is old school racist
0: at one point she said he held up the blood-drenched baseball cap of a man who'd just been shot and that man was harrington now thankfully bourgeois was indicted in 2010 with charges with conspiracy to commit a hate crime committing a hate crime with a deadly weapon and with intent to kill making false statements and obstruction of justice
1: those are all federal or
0: Yes. Yeah, because federal. it's a hate crime. Yeah. It's federal. All federal. So he eventually is going to be tried, actually, soon, because he was deemed incompetent, but he's recently been re-evaluated and has been deemed competent to stand trial. But these are the actions of one man, maybe a few, and they're terrible, horrible, disgusting actions. But let's follow the advice of Mr. Rogers.
1: What's the advice? You don't I don't know, Mr. Rogers. In
0: an emergency. Look for the helpers. Look for the helpers. Because vigilantism and that kind of trying to seek law and order doesn't have to be with an AK-47.
1: So let's move forward in time, just a little bit, and we'll go back again. But let's move forward for just a minute and look at the story by Miriam Markowitz, are published in December of 2017 in GQ was titled, We'll Deal with the Consequences Later, The Cajun Navy and the Vigilante Future of Disaster Relief. The piece begins in August when Hurricane Harvey made landfall, dropping 50 inches of rain and flooding 28,000 square miles around Houston in three days. The people of Louisiana raised a vigilante armada, the Cajun Navy, to come to the aid of their neighbors in Texas. Volunteer rescuers arrived soon after the storm hit, with flat-bottomed boats, normally used for navigating the bayous, now repurposed to maneuver around submerged streets, bringing desperately needed supplies, and in the absence of first responders, ferrying stranded people. So the group started out, when Harvey hit, by delivering things like diapers and water. To affected areas and they also organized men with boats to actually go into flooded areas and help evacuate people from their flooded homes and this was a repeat of the action that had been taken in 2005 during Katrina right. that's when the mm-hmm. Cajun Navy was established
0: right because during Katrina a posse was formed the sheriffs called up people they knew they got their boats they met at a point and they took their boats down to New Orleans through the flooded waters To rescue people. And I'm proud to say that my stepdad was one of those people.
1: He was on the cover of the New York Times doing this. He
0: was. He was. And so I think it's so funny because it formed like a posse. Like the sheriff called him up. And the the word spread just like it does with a posse. And all the men gathered together. But they gathered together to help people.
1: So the Cajun Navy existed only when the need arose. It was around for Katrina. They regrouped in 2016 when Baton Rouge flooded really badly. That did not get any national news attention. It was (laughs) covered a lot on ESPN, which is weird. They were here for like a game or something. But it was horrible. Like it really was. They call it the Great Flood. It was a terrible flood. And so the group got back together in 2016 to come and get people in Baton Rouge that needed help. But when Harvey hit... They went. So during Harvey, Ben Husser, who is a Hammond, Louisiana native, went to Port Arthur, Texas with the Cajun Navy. Under the direction of a local judge who was organizing the rescue and recovery effort, he was working with them, and he heard there was some trouble at a nursing home. When a staff member let them into the facility, they found an older woman sitting in a wheelchair, and her legs were covered by a foot and a half of fetid water. Why is she shaking, Ben asked. How long has she been here? And the staffer said she didn't know. Throughout the building, residents were left in different states of undress, men lying in beds that hovered above flood waters, contaminated with feces and urine. The flooding had begun in the toilets, and now 65 residents were being kept in a lake of sewage. They hadn't eaten since the night before, and many were dehydrated. Ben demanded to speak to the director of the nursing home, but citing corporate policy, the director explained that he had decided against evacuating the residents, and he certainly wouldn't let the Cajun Navy take them. Only the National Guard was authorized to do so. Ben found himself at an impasse with the director that words would not resolve. I had to beat the hell out of the nursing home director, Ben told me. At one point during the altercation, Ben drew a gun. Ben got on the phone with a Louisiana congressman who was sympathetic to the Cajun Navy's efforts, and he sent a video of the situation inside the nursing home. The congressman said, Do what you have to do to get those people out. We'll deal with the consequences later. And soon, Port Arthur police showed up and detained the director while Ben and his team started removing the grateful residents. Nurses made sure that nobody left without their medication and their medical records, and they loaded the residents into boats and brought them to a temporary shelter in a bowling alley and a small theater until military rescue could relocate them to appropriate facilities. When Ben met with a reporter, he still had a black eye. He's a member of the National Guard and has been rescuing people as both a military man and a private citizen for years but he prefers to act on his own in the military i'm bound by a set of rules here i get a lot more accomplished so we're at this moment in time when it seems like government aid government assistance government agencies the purpose of the government is not doing as well as
0: it could right it's harder to rely on them
1: so during times of crisis and calm this is the case And because natural disasters are happening with greater frequency, it is more difficult for the government to react appropriately. Right. So amateur outfits like the Cajun Navy are not only nice, but it's maybe a very American solution. The idea of strong-willed, brave citizens working collectively to help each other during an emergency, that sounds very American. But it's also a scenario whose utility has its limits as well as its dangers. Now, it's not shocking that these people are from Louisiana because there's an old joke that goes, at any time, half the state is either underwater or under indictment. That's accurate. Mm-hmm. But it's begun to have spinoffs. So there's the Cajun Army, which is people without boats, uh, Cajun Special Forces, Cajun Airlift, Cajun Green Cross, the Texas Navy, the Cracker Navy, which is in Florida, which was organized after Irma. In Texas during the week after Harvey, pretty much any man from Louisiana that had a boat would say he was part of the Cajun Navy. And a lot of people who were not from Louisiana would say they were part of the Cajun Navy. And they got in touch with each other on Facebook and met up in parking lots and using an app called Zello, which is a walkie-talkie app. And so they tried to put new people with more established rescuers and increase their effectiveness. Six million people downloaded that app in the week after Harvey. And now it has over 100 million registered users, probably from it being reported on, that that was the app they were using to get in touch with each other. So they were getting more pushback from law enforcement. The Cajun Navy called another Louisiana politician who said, the state police can't stop you from driving to Texas. In a time of disaster, you can break the rules and still do the right thing. So a lot of times people will say like that the danger of having a group of people go out and do this themselves is they will tend to take better care of the people who are like them it becomes a tribal exercise but facts will show that is not the case with the cajun navy
0: without a doubt
1: so todd a man who speaks for the cajun navy said in new orleans we were rescuing hundreds of black people from places most would never go this isn't about race it's about coming together moskowitz the reporter goes on todd appeared to be correct In contrast to the lopsidedness of federal relief, I encountered no evidence that any victims were denied help from the Cajun Navy because they were black and saw many pictures documenting the opposite.
0: So I think that there's an obvious reason why this was covered so much in the news, especially with Hurricane Harvey's destruction of Houston, because it's something we all want to see in the news. It's something we hope we are capable of as a people coming together to help our fellow man to put our own concerns and needs aside and do something that is a hundred percent selfless.
1: Maybe that's easier to do when we can really see who needs help in these situations, like a, a huge natural disaster. Maybe that gives us clarity on who the victims are, because as we've seen looking at fictional cases, far, far reaching historical cases and even up to the modern day, We try to systematize these practices when it's not just reaching out a hand to someone who's in need. It becomes much more difficult to know who's on the side of right, who's the victim, and who's the bad guy. But I think we would all be a little bit better if we trusted ourselves to reach out to people when they really need it. Not to be the arbiters of justice in our own hands. Sometimes the systems that we erect, sometimes these massive overarching nationwide systems fail. Sometimes things break down. Sometimes there's a natural disaster. Sometimes there's a war on. And those things aren't big enough to deal with the situation at hand. And maybe it's our role as good as citizens to be the link. Not to take the place of, but to help people find their way to the beating point instead of shooting them down. To ferry our friends and family To a place that's safe. We can't be the final solution when things go wrong. But we can help put them right.
0: And that's not just a story.
1: It's not just a story.